I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing Boz Scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. And every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, and every time we love and it feels just like this, it feels just like this, it feels I wish I had a time machine, wish I had a better rhyming speed, wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lime bean, I wish that I could spread my wings, I wish that I had seven limbs, yeah. that way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish, dímelo, dímelo, at least I kind of understand it. <laughs> wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic. Hello, cats and kittens, and welcome to another episode of The Debrief. I'm your host, Brianna Joy Gray. The Brie Indie Brief, and I'm very excited to be talking to you tonight about anything that's on your mind. Today's episode of Bad Faith, of course, was a conversation with an eco-philosopher from Rice University that I found to be, you know, kind of unexpectedly compelling. Uh, you might have heard me make mention several times now of this article in New York Magazine from last month, um, just that I just really love and was taken with, and the author set up a contrast between um, today's guest, Timothy Morton, and Andreas Malm, whom a lot of you will be familiar with because of his infamous book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And it teed them up as kind of having antagonistic uh, theories of change to each other, which, you know, is complicated. So by this episode, I don't think Timothy sees it as quite so antagonistic. I'm still hoping one day, one day I'm able to get um, both of them uh, on the podcast together. Uh, but in the meantime, let's talk about that and anything else that's on your mind. Obviously, you know, we talked about force of it a lot last week, but there are drips and drabs of thoughts and feelings and opinions percolating through. It does really feel like there's been a lot of revisionist history where people are now scrambling to claim that, oh, no, they didn't have a problem with force the vote. They just had a problem with the ask. Oh, no, my issue was just with, you know, uh, Medicare for all is a demand because it wouldn't have passed magically, which nobody was ever claiming it would. And, you know, people are uh, arguing that we didn't have a panoply of potential asks that were on the table, one of which was simply to not vote for Nancy, Nancy Pelosi because she sucks uh, and not to be demanding anything at all except for it not to not be Nancy Pelosi. But, of course, the pushback they had to that was, well, it's just going to be Hakeem Jeffries and he's just as bad or he's worse than Nancy Pelosi. And so it's just as really ironic to be sitting here with both Nancy, uh, sorry, with both Hakeem Jeffries and um, McCarthy in speakership roles after we all know that those names were used as a bully pulpit to kill the strategy as a whole. 
But, you know, as always, the floor is yours. We can talk about whatever is on your mind. I'm going to try to make this a tight two hours today. So let's get to it. Michael, what is on your mind? Hello. You with us, Michael? There you go. Okay, good. No problems this time. Awesome. All right. <laughs> Resist the urge to uh, take continued victory laps for force the vote, even though we saw <laughs> all the concessions come out. Um, pretty amazing. And focus more on today's episode of Bad Faith. And um, one thing I wanted to comment on was uh, you were discussing ways to make uh, what Edward Abbey would call like eco-terrorism or eco-activism more palatable to the public. But from my experience, I mean, there's no amount of like effort that you can put to make it like you're doing the right thing that isn't going to get spun by the media as uh, negative. An example is uh, during the no dapple protests um, in North Dakota, what they would do is they would take pictures of the landscape in spring when everything's green and then take pictures of everything in like uh, December when, you know, everything looks muddy and dirty and say, look at the, look at all the, look what they've done to the land here that the water protectors are supposedly trying to prote- uh, protect. Are you serious? Oh yeah. This was, it's, 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 it's same level as uh, coloring Bernie purple to make him look like he's heart attack risk. I had forgotten uh, about that too. My goodness. Yeah. Uh, you're you're, tri- you're all triggering this media. me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was wondering what your thoughts were on like how you could possibly counter uh a narrative set to get everybody against any type of a- activism like this um, because they hold all the cards and they have millions of viewers. I don't know, man. I mean, you bringing up those examples, uh, the Bernie example, the double protester examples. And then also, frankly, I, I really admire your desire not to talk about, <laughs> talk about person, but, <laughs> but also the example of the, the, how the press has treated this. You know, given that one of the biggest arguments against it two years ago is, oh, you're going to get negative coverage. There'll be a pogrom against the progressives, blah, blah, blah. And you saw the same thing happen to the 20 rebel Republicans. They got dragged through the press. I I guess my answer would be, like, it's just going to happen. And the bad press doesn't mean the thing that you're doing won't work or that the people who are ideologically aligned with you and who support your project aren't going to continue to support your project. If there's a concern that getting negative media, I mean, is, is, it a, is it a righteous cause or not? Is it a moral cause or not? That's, I'm not saying, obviously, don't do what you can to insulate yourself against it. Don't try to have your own independent media for pushback. Don't try to, you know, you should obviously try to leverage. This is part of why people are so fr- frustrated with the squad members right now. To the extent that there's any ability to compete with legacy media and to get on reliably, legacy media and say your perspective and say your truth and offer pushback, it's going to come from people like Congress members because people like us can't get on there. So, you know, it's not to say that all of those resources shouldn't be weaponized. Um, Social media, you know, all the independent media in the world can be very helpful. But, you know, I, I just fundamentally... I don't think that people should be on the defensive back foot, especially when you know you're fighting for things that have such broad social purchase. 
Also, I mean, I think there's something also to, you know, teaching media literacy as we're doing this, where it's, I just said this in a radar last week. Part of what's so disappointing sometimes is you know that people are being pressured. You know that things are going on behind the scenes and folks who mean well and are good people and who want the same things that we do aren't taking the more bold or courageous stand because they're being, you know, threatened behind the scenes. You, we know that there is biased media. We know that people are paid off and corrupt. You know, we know all of these things. But if it's not said out loud, if, if we're not explaining to the public why the opinions they're consuming are the way they are, that's what's harmful. They can, they can make decisions, but you have to be in a position to inform them, which is why it's so frustrating when, you know, coerced members of Congress don't just come out and say, hey, I really wanted to vote against the Iron Dome, but Nancy Pelosi told me she was going to strip all my uh, committee positions if I did. Right. You know, like, rat them out. Rat the bad guy out. And I don't, I don't recall, I don't, you know, I obviously wasn't following what was happening with Dodoppel closely enough to remember the, the bit about, you know, how they were exploiting photos from different times of years to pretend that they were actually polluting the environment. But oh, it was every tactic in the book. And it was the brutal conditions. Like it was so cold on those planes and they had, they had kids out. Everyone was out there sleeping and, and. And then they bring water cannons and literally yeah. shoot people with water cannons. And I don't know last time you hung out in like five degree weather for a couple hours. Yeah. Is, but well, it's, it's I do amazing. remember that. I do remember that breaking through. I remember somebody got very hurt. Their arm was broken or something by a water cannon. Like they just blasted some girl, woman's arm off, if I recall correctly. And I remember that being such an issue in the mainstream media that Hillary Clinton was compelled to finally like make a statement about it, even though she had been ignoring it for yeah. months, and, like right up basically to the end of the election. And Obama too. I mean, he was just waiting it out until somebody else's problem. And then mm-hmm. right when uh, – it was one of the first things Trump did was came in with the bulldozers and tore down all the, the settlements and whatnot. Yes, I mean, that, that's a kind of an interesting case study because it does seem – I mean, I would obviously – prefer it not to come down to protesters getting grievously injured for it to become an event significant enough that mainstream political figures need to finally feel compelled to weigh in. But there is something to be said for the fact that people's persistence and courage in that moment did, did win the day. And additionally, I will say uh, part of what, garnered a degree of mainstream attention, if I recall correctly, was um, uh, Jill Stein visiting. Right, yep. Uh, she was the first politician, or at least major, you know, kind of national politician to go down there. And I remember very much observing that when that happened, and that really sitting well with me. It made me, you know, confirmed my value for her and my choice to vote for her. But I, I, I don't know, like... It's a mix. I think it's just a mix of all of those things. I think it was really important that she go. I think it would have been even more important if more people went. I think it was great. You know, one of the things that made me, frankly, like AOC so much in the beginning is the fact that she went. She wasn't obviously a politician at that time, but, you know, we have to be able to rely on those kinds of resources. The people who are willing need to step up, and we need to make them accountable when they don't step up. And I also think that, I mean, we have a much more, I think, robust independent media system now than we did then. But, of course, it is also very fragmented. So, well, I should ask you, what do you think? 
uh, about the media question. Mm-hmm. What would you like to see happening differently that might help? Um, you know, uh, it, it, the, the damage was done from just the pure strength of corporate media and how many people could are reached through it. So if there was some way to, to counter, to counterman that, be it word of mouth or like a thousand more, uh, bad faith podcasts or whatever it takes. I don't know. I was asking you cause I'm kind of at a loss on that, on that specific front. Um, a couple, yeah, I mean, sorry, go uh, ahead. Go ahead. I was going to talk a little bit more about node Apple specifically, just cause it's like you said, an interesting case study. Sure. Uh, after, so after it's over, uh, and a lot of people, by the way, the people there were largely native American, like mm-hmm. is the largest, gathering of tribes they were saying almost a hundred years and most native communities don't have a lot of resources but they were the ones out there front lines protecting i was wondering you know where are all my other people at uh, where, where uh, there was a lot of people sending sending things and whatnot but mm-hmm. it felt like just this smaller subset of, and i know it was on um uh standing rock land but uh i expected this i thought there'd be just more more representation there. Um, but afterwards, after it was done, uh, Keystone was the next pipeline in line. And the governor in South Dakota, Christy Nome, put forth so many egregious anti-protester laws, like literally trying to make it legal for vehicular manslaughter to, to, to run people over with cars mm-hmm. if they're blocking traffic and, and a lot of uh, First Amendment uh blocking um mm-hmm. and 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 we didn't see the same the same fervor for keystone even though that pipeline was the, was way more dangerous as bill mckibben has said if those tar sands uh burn it's game over for the planet a cynical part of me well i don't know enough to weigh in i'd be interested to know my my feeling during the Biden era and seeing the failures to step up to the plate on a lot of these pipeline permitting environmental questions. I I feel as though the energy around a lot of these events has to do with who's in office, who can be blamed, what's a better narrative about who the bad guy is. You know, if it's, if it's Obama, do we care as much as if it is, Trump or about to be Trump, you know, those, those kind of, those kinds of background concerns. But yeah, I, I do, I have to, I'd have to look more about the difference between how Nodopol and Keystone were handled. Keystone, I remember there being a lot of arguments about the kind of economic necessity of Keystone in the same way that right now in the context of all of the high oil prices last year, there, it, it muddled in, 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 you know, um, what do you call it? Um, inflation. It muddled some of the messaging around the pipeline. Where it felt like there wasn't the same appetite for yeah, and the legal conversation. The actual legal challenge was was weaker for Keystone too. You didn't have uh, unseated so much. A lot of it, not so much of it, went through. Like the the, the argument for no dapple was this is unseated territory and you just, you, you moved it from the, the rich white people right, in Bismarck down mm-hmm. through uh, 
Native, Native American land on kind of that sovereign territory and most of Keystone didn't. There's just kind of a corner in the, in the south, uh, eastern, southwestern part of the state. So maybe the legal challenge had something to do with it too. But I think you're also right that, that there is maybe less appetite because in this case, because of how hard Trump cracked down on no dapple, like how far are you going to get? And we just did this. And what did we win too? Yeah. And that, I mean, that's the interesting, we've talked about this with Donziger and the criminalization of protesters and the ratcheting up of these sentences and yeah. And the counter question before I, before I let you go hear any more remarks you have on this is, um, is what you're trying to balance is what is the acceptable amount of action you can take to save the planet? I mean, um, with the things we've seen coming through climate change, the price of inaction is infinitely higher than the price of action. But who, who's willing to do what like uh, Jessica and them did? Mm-hmm. You know, to put themselves on the line that much. I think you need mm-hmm. just a lot more people. You can't you can't prosecute ten million people, right? But you can get right. Five. I mean, people are drawing all these contrasts between the number of people that got arrested and charged in the Brazil, mm-hmm. whatever you yeah. want to call it, five hundred people. I thought I saw versus ours, where right. they were trying Nobody, to track down zero. people after the fact right. using like social media and like barely arrested anybody on the scene at the time. And it's, these are choices that are being made. Um, and in the article that I keep referencing where I, where I came across uh, Professor Morin for the first time, the point is made that all of the protesting and legal challenges, et cetera, I think it was for Nodopol, slowed, you know, or maybe it was actually for um, Keystone, slowed it down by like, let's say, Six, you know, six months and two people time, you know, doing the the action that Jessica right, Re- yep. Desnick did and 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 co. Slowed it down comparable. by like almost as much time with like no money whatsoever and and so many fewer resources invested. Now, obviously, they're paying the price, but it begs some questions about what strategy actually works in terms of halting the things that are killing the planet. So, I appreciate you calling in, Michael. It's it's an interesting question. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right, keep the faith. Keep the faith. I'm gonna skip around a bit. Um, let's try Steve. You look like a new face. What's in your mind tonight, Steve? Are you with us, Steve? Did I catch you off guard. I see you're unmuted. Can you talk, Steve? No, Steve. Steve, going once. Steve, going twice. I'll come back to you if uh, this is a technical issue. Nick, what's on your mind tonight? Hello. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, Nick. What's on your mind? Um, uh, quite a lot. I always, I always like these <laughs> environmental episodes. Um, so I'm a, I'm gonna try to to keep it uh, succinct. But if I start to uh, dissertate, uh, please uh, interrupt me. Um, <laughs> But I actually, maybe I'm going to start with my second point first, because um, it is kind of ties into what uh, Michael was saying. And I thought he raised a lot of great points, um, which I uh, agreed with what your with what your guest said today um, about his point that Andreas is Andreas moms uh, advocated 
uh, the 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 uh, the strategy that he advocates in terms of uh, wide scale property destruction and wide scale civil disobedience is not um, particular particularly scalable. Um, and I think that this a big reason that this is the case is because of the uh, cognitive dissonance that exists <clears throat> in the U.S. and the global north, uh, broadly speaking, between um, people, the, the psychology of, uh, of the public in terms of how they think about climate change, what they think about climate change, how they feel about it, um, and uh, even, even their, their awareness. Um, so between that and you know, the reality of what actually is happening with the climate crisis. Um, and, you know, it's it, this, <laughs> this cognitive dissonance is basically, you know, the, the subject of the movie Don't Look Up. Um, but I think, uh, y y y you know, like we, 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 we know we're, we're living in a, in a climate crisis. We get bombarded with uh, data and stats and, and information. So, you know, we, we know logically that we are, but, um, you know, the, the, the status quo seems to sort of uh, carry on. Um, and I think this is an interesting phenomenon that is pretty unique to the global north because most of the global, global climate activism has been from countries in the global south. Um, and uh, I was listening to a podcast from a professor from Columbia, uh, that is Columbia, the <clears throat> Columbia, the country, not Columbia University. Mm -hmm. And he was saying that, um, you know, in my country, everyone's kind of on the same page about climate change because, you know, we're being we're being bombarded <laughs> and we're being hit by uh, by hurricanes, by droughts, by by, you know, by all of it. Um, and I feel like the and, 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 you know, that 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 causes everybody to to realize how what what is happening in terms of the connection between the burning of fossil fuels, the capitalist exploitation of our environment, and what that means for the livelihoods of ourselves as individuals. And I think that, you know, it's not like, it's not like climate change is not affecting the livelihoods of people in the global north, because it is. Uh, my family, uh, both sides of my family are from small farming communities in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. um, and over the past couple of years, uh, people people in these communities have had their entire crops uh, destroyed by hail, and mm. and so, but you know they keep they, they they're not connecting the dots like they they um you know they're still electing state legislators that are imposing uh imposing you know completely completely meaningless and and ridiculous uh obstacles for a scaling up of of renewable energy so i don't really know i don't really know what it is maybe we've just been subjected to um so much climate propaganda from the fossil fuel industry from uh you know corporate politicians in the corporate media um that we are just not connecting the dots but i but i think that that is why uh the the how to blow up a pipeline approach is not uh is not scalable um as as your guest mr timothy morton was saying because you know if there if there is if there is frankly this much hand wringing over throwing soup at a painting or, or letting the air out of the tires of suvs 
how can we expect that that um, enough people will will engage in this kind of coordinated uh, 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 property destruction to significantly turn the turn the gauge on on climate change? And you know some of the some of the uh, uh, issues that Michael was bringing up with the corporate media, um, uh, you know. Uh, spinning the spinning the situation in a way that that does not portray environmental activists favorably, um, as well as the you know fascist crackdown of 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 protesters um, it, with with these like anti anti uh, anti protesting laws that are being enacted all around the country. So basically, yeah, I guess that all all that is to say, like I don't I don't really think that this, this, you you know, maybe, maybe it'll, maybe it'll uh, succeed in stopping one pipeline or significantly delaying one pipeline. But if uh, in in the case of, you know, you, you bring up, you brought up a couple times that uh, Jessica Resensack uh, was able to delay um, uh, what was a Dapple or Keystone um, by, by a couple months so you know there are there are there are there are wins there are those sort of small wins, but if we're talking about you know actually uh, actually canceling all the fossil fuel infrastructure um, and ripping all the pipelines out of the ground and fully transitioning to uh, uh, a renewable energy future, I don't think there's anything that is going to be able to do that except for a mass environmental movement, and I guess I don't really see how. Um, these sort of small, small scale uh, uh, property destruction actions will do anything but push people yeah. away from joining so a movement like I, that. This is something that I'm noticing a lot um, when we have these conversations on the left. And it's that strategies are presented as though they're mutually exclusive. And as though there has to be a group consensus on the strategy before we can move forward. And that if someone likes a strategy that the consensus hasn't agreed to, then that is perceived as somehow detrimental to, or, you know, detrimental to the other strategy. I mean, I'm just saying what I said initially, that they have to be mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. So, for example... When you started talking about how Malm's approach doesn't seem scalable, my first thought was, well, why not? First of all, I think Malm's approach – I haven't read his book. I'm sitting here looking at it. I bought it last weekend, but I haven't gotten a chance to open it. <clears throat> but the, as, I've, as I understand it, a lot of it is about much smaller acts of civil disobedience like letting air out of tires, which mm. – is not getting anybody, well, at least now, we'll see if they change all of these laws and ratchet it up. It isn't getting anybody thrown into jail for any time, much less nine years. So something like that, the question is, is it scalable for everyone to start letting the tires out of SUVs every time they see them around the city? That seems Mm. imminently scalable to me, actually. Moreover, the idea that, of course, we have to have this you know, grassroots revolution and social movement, and that's how things are going to get done. Yeah, of course. But it it strikes me as clear or likely, I should say, that those kinds of movements are spurred, are galvanized by 
actions of sometimes smaller groups of very brave people who take on a great deal of risk for themselves. So the idea that we had 20 million people in the streets not two years ago protesting because a particularly census incident of police violence happened to be caught on camera and Mm -hmm. it set everybody off. Now, someone being filmed murdered by the police is not exactly the same thing as someone blowing up a pipeline. One's a tragic act, you know, a tragic thing that happened, not purposefully. The other is a purposeful act of civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. But the idea that something can happen, that we've seen this over and over again, that some things happen that really highlight exactly how unjust the system is and cause people to do that kind of movement activity that we all think is going to be required of us or required to create change. It frustrates me sometimes that knowing how that, how that, how that's been the model over and over and over again, we talk about things like the pipeline protest or the mom approach as counter to rather than conducive to the broader movement activity. I wonder what you think of that. Um, I, I don't disagree with you that they necessarily uh, have to be counter. Uh, but I think this is basically the point that I made in the, in the last time I called it and I'm not going to try and relitigate it, but mainly, but, but I think if, if, uh, the environmental movement does not, uh, uh, build credibility with the rest of the public, uh, uh, in, as a compliment to these kinds of, uh, these kinds of fringe, uh, 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 not, not, not fringe, but, you know, like the, um, the, the civil disobedience, uh, uh, against things like pipelines or, or, uh, power plants. If, if, um, if, if it's, yeah, if the, if the environmental movement does, does not build credibility, um, with, with the public, then I think, uh, it's it's gonna it's gonna drive more people in a way away, and I think that something a, a particular thing about the environmental movement it is it is historically it is an elite movement. You know, it is uh, your, your guest um, uh, brought this up a little bit in the in the uh, in 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 the episode where he where he um, talked about the Sierra Club, and you know there. there I forget the example he used, but I'm aware of, a, of another example where basically um, <clears throat> it was in the 80s or 90s or something. And the Sierra Club put out a, a survey to all, all their members. And basically the question was like, should we uh, should we do more to sh- should we should we focus should we start focusing more on the environmental uh, issues that uh, face minorities instead of, you know, what we usually do, which is uh, like conservation and biodiversity and all that and basically all their members <laughs> the, the vast majority said you know no we shouldn't do that and you know that that's kind of that's kind of what what we're working with and we can't disregard their his, this history another example is that um when when the oil chemical and atomic workers union uh as as well as a number of other uh uh unions in the in the energy industry was pushing for the passage of OSHA, the, you know, occupational mm-hmm. safety. Uh, I don't know what the accurate acronym is hazard and what, whatever, you know, OSHA, mm-hmm. um, uh, the Sierra club, um, 
uh, and a number of the other large uh, mainstream environmental groups like the Environmental Defense Fund uh, did not did not sign on and did not um, did not uh, endorse the passage of OSHA, despite uh, despite uh, organizers from OCAW, Oil Chemical and Atomic Workers, uh, you know, making a lot of efforts to, to make inroads with them. And and uh, so, yeah, I guess all this is to say that, you know, the 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 environmental movement needs to do a lot to win back this credibility, I think. Um, and, you know, you know, frankly, j just just right now, um, what what is what is the environmental movement look like? I guess from my vantage point, I'm, I'm a college student. Uh, it, it, it looks like it's pretty a lot of it is, you know, confined to college campuses, is confined to, to elite spaces. And I think this, uh, you know, you, you kind of, you kind you kind of speak to this a little bit in the episode too, where you call these, uh, where you call these, um, uh, soup protesters, the people who threw, threw soup at the painting, like these pink haired, uh, these pink haired, um, uh, <laughs> kids, I guess, yeah. I, I forget specifically what you, what, what, Words he used, um, you know, all, all, all basically just to say that you know these are privileged kids, and uh, so so yeah. I don't know that to be true. Actually, I was trying to speak in the voice of how they're being characterized in the media. I was I was saying that ironically, not characterized them the way I personally would characterize them. Oh, gotcha. Yes, yeah, certainly that's the that's the way they're they've been characterized. So I, I guess my response to all of that would be to say. I'm at a point, and I could be wrong, where I actually disagree with the idea of uh, continuing to seek social uh, media buy-in. I just now decided that I don't care. Uh, we sit around as people who support the most popular policies in the country and endlessly have conversations about to have, how to get even more people on board when it's quite obvious that the problem isn't that people aren't on board. It's a problem. The problem is that we have a captured media, captured political system, a captured court system, a court system that will prosecute Steve Donzinger while letting Exxon Chevron go without paying its debts after murdering people in the Amazon mm -hmm. a court system that will throw you into jail for blowing up a pipeline, but not for having that pipeline leak into the water table and causing cancer deaths and other kinds of ailments across the country. A media system that sees a young woman like Jessica thrown into jail for nine years and says absolutely nothing about it when that should be the linchpin galvanizing moment for an entire movement of millions of people in the streets. And a political system that is so captured that it simply never even mentions that any of these things are happening. Major political candidates in a race like in 2016 can feel free to completely ignore what's going on as protesters are having their arms blasted off. Um, in the winter <laughs> and freezing temperatures. Um, uh, and no matter how sympathetic the protesters are, no matter how sympathetic the claim is, no matter how yeah. much healthy guilt there is around how this country has treated Native Americans, no matter any of it. And I think that we're looking in the wrong place. And that's why, even though I will acknowledge that there are optics concerns with the soup and all of that, I, I, 
I respect people who feel differently, but I don't give a shit. And I think no matter what color your hair is and what level of privilege you're at, if you're willing to, the, the point that the, the, the buy-in with civil disobedience, your credibility is earned through the fact that you're going to jail, that you, you do the crime and then you do the time. So I don't need, if someone, if someone is brave enough and purposeful enough and invested enough that they're willing to do something like what Jessica did or those soup kids did or whomever yeah, and, and go to jail for it. I don't need that for them to prove to me that they're like woke or down with whatever marginalized community or anything else. They've, they've proved it. You know, that's the whole point of civil disobedience. And I, given, given all of that bravery and all those people who've worked so hard out there, like if people don't get it, like we've, We've, we are, we already are winning the, the public opinion war about what should be done. And I think there's yeah. a way that we cut ourselves off at the knees by being overly sensitive to what some soccer mom and carpool is going to think. There's also a lot of privileged people on the other hand, on the other side of it saying, we don't want to give up our privilege to have our heated, you know, floors or to water my lawn in LA or whatever else it is, you know? Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I guess, can I just say, I, I, I have full respect for, for all of the, for, for, I have full respect for the suit protesters. I have full respect for uh, all the people who engage in social, social disobedience. Um, I, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm making sure to make this point now because I'm seeing in the chat that, that people are like, you know, is, is this guy a fed or something? I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm saying that these these things should should not have to be mutually exclusive and i think that the environmental movement uh, needs to i mean it, it just just really needs to to start um talking talking more about class talking more about race because they have not they have they have spent too much time talking about the polar bears like your guest was saying and and you know not spending enough time to build cross-class solidarity and multiracial solidarity. So that, I guess that, that is, you know, my main point. And I, I've, I have a lot of ideas about how to do that. And I, again, second, second in the, in, in the last episode. Um, and a, another thing that, that you said is, you know, we have, we have, uh, we, we have the public opinion on our side. Um, and I think that is true, but, uh, because I mean, obviously we know it because of polls, but um, you know that th that is a very different thing from enough people being willing to to take action and take radical action, such as you know, like what if what if uh, every fossil fuel every worker in the fossil fuel industry um, you know went on strike and and demanded uh, a just transition, like like what would happen then? I mean, we're 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 a pretty far uh, way away from from that reality and i feel like you know we're just we're, we're living in the in the don't look up uh universe um where we know what's going on and we're not um and yeah we're we're, we're just not uh we 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 don't feel that it's i i don't really know what i'm saying i'm uh i think you i think you've you made your, your point well, Nick. I'm going to move on to some other callers, but I, you know, I, I think organizing, you know, we'll say it again. Organizing labor is important. You know, 
obviously being intersectional in your approach is important, but I think the, the, the environmental movement is not what it was in the Sierra Club in the 70s. I have not ever talked to an environmentalist that doesn't have to give the same, not have to, but doesn't use that same language about frontline communities and all of that. Like, I think a lot of the necessary changes have been made, but that doesn't, you know, magically turn a switch and get everybody bought in. Um, so, you know, I, I happen to think that folks making courageous stands on an individual basis have repeatedly throughout history galvanized entire movements. And mm-hmm. I, I would never tell anybody to do something, you know, like that's a huge burden for someone to take on themselves. But I have mm-hmm. the utmost respect for people who've done that. And the real crime, I think, the question we should be asking is why am I still in a place where I can never pronounce poor Jessica Res- Resnick's mm-hmm. last name when she really should be a hero in our community and somebody that we really rally behind and whose name is on our lips and calling for pardons and um, protesting the injustice that has been done to her at least as much, if not more, more than we've been rallying behind uh, someone like Steven Donzinger. So I appreciate you calling in Nick. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I appreciate you taking my call. All right. Keep the faith, Steve, steal yourself. I'm coming back to you. Don't panic. Don't panic, Steve. You got this. Unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. Steve, Steve, you got to press the unmute button. Don't, don't hang up on yourself again. You, you got this, Steve. Just find the unmute button. It looks like a little microphone, like a little corn cob. Am I the only one who thinks it looks like corn? And the little, the little red mic button on your face will disappear and then you'll be able to talk. But we, we need you to unmute yourself, Steve. I believe in Steve. You guys are hilarious. <laughs> All right, Steve, I'm going to, I'm going to push on, uh, but I will circle back to you because now I think we're all just like too invested. I'm going to come to Jessica. What's on your mind, Jessica? Can you mute yourself, Jessica? Hi, Hello. Hello, Jessica. I'm glad to see that the unmute issue is not a system-wide failure. It's just Steve being Steve, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Feel bad for Steve. Sorry, man. Steve, I think Steve is going to come through. We'll give him another shot. But what's on your mind tonight? Um, Mostly just something really quick. Uh, Sorry, I'm getting over a cold, so I might sound a little weird. Um, No, just mostly what the last caller was talking about something that just came to mind. I don't know if you've ever read um, anything written by Wendell Berry. I don't think so. He's like a, he's a Kentucky farmer. um, And he has, he wrote in the, I think the seventies, right. As sort of the agricultural movement was changing. And um, I think a lot of like um, environmental things are kind of coming to a head. He wrote the unsettling of America and has kind of like devoted his life to writing about um, like rural and uh, specifically Appalachian um, like farmers um, and what like the neglect of the U.S. government and kind of like intentional um, action by the U.S. government has done to local farmers. Mm. And um, he just is a really cool writer for that kind of area in America. And um, he himself 
uh, as like an 80 something year old organized like a sit in, I think the governor's office um, talking about like the, um, sorry, the um, like mining in Appalachia and what that's doing to the Kentucky landscape. So just thinking like, it's not just like, you know, the characterized like purple haired liberals or something Mm -hmm. who are caring about this. It's, it's people all over the place. Yeah, I'm trying to remember, was it Paula Jean Swearingen? I was talking to somebody from West Virginia about, mm-hmm. who was from a coal family, about yeah. how plenty of people in their family, despite having this economic reliance on the industry, are have a very negative relationship with it also because they're the ones that have experienced all these health conditions mm-hmm. from it. They've seen the strip mining and what it's done to their environment you know, like phys- right. both the physical beauty of their state and the, you know, environmental turmoil, obviously, um, and that they've seen how extractive it's been and how mm-hmm. little all of the money that's being made benefits the people who actually live in the state. Exactly. And they don't like it. I mean, and they're kind of mm-hmm. there. They they don't have a choice. And so they, they'll vote for people who will say they want to keep the jobs in the state because there's no alternative. But it's not as though there's a, the, this like abstract love fest with the idea of, coal mining. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think there's something to be said, you know, and, and agreeing, I'll, I'll agree with the last caller on this about making sure that there are, there's a diversity of approach and the kinds of people who are talking about it going into different kinds of communities. So they seem appealable. You're, so you're not sending some, you know, lady concerned about the pandas into mm-hmm. a coal mining town to give the pitch as mm-hmm. But, I, yeah, I do think there is a lot of organic interest in this. I mean, this is part of what the whole thing was supposed to be with the just transition, yada, yada, yada. The mm. whole point was to take the economic concerns out of the equation from all the people in the industry and say, no, we're guaranteeing you clean jobs. Like, don't worry about mm-hmm. it. You're going to get a better job at a higher income with health care and not all of these concerns about black lung or what have you. Mm-hmm. And you know, so so you can actually just make a, a decision, like not a coerced decision, not a constrained choice. But you know, here we are, burning wind. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I think a lot of my like. That's where I end up a lot often. I'm like, well, well, here we are, awesome. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, okay, I I appreciate that. Did you have anything else in your mind? No, that was it. I just I really appreciate taking my call. I appreciate you doing this. It's um. Like we, me and my sister are always talking about episodes and the Collins and everything. So it's kind of oh, surreal. That's so great to hear. <laughs> Thank you, Jessica. Thanks for listening. Keep the faith. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. All right, Nathan with the bunny rabbit. What's on your mind tonight? Am, am I good? Yes, you are. I can hear you loud and clear. Thanks for noticing the rabbit. Um, <laughs> I had a different one previously. But I decided to change it, one, because the picture looks really cool. And also, in that same episode, you said that you're a sucker for pictures of pets. <laughs> so I felt like I kind of had an obligation to do it. <laughs> well, I'm an easy mark. You know, you, you were at the front of the line. So I'm, I'm going like front of the line, hop around, front of the line, hop around. So you were going to get called anyway because of your good line placement. But I appreciate looking at it a little cutie patootie. Although I have to confess... I have not the best track record with rabbits. <laughs> there was an incident when I was in the second grade where my mother uh, was trying to give me a 
360 Martha Stewart style uh, childhood experience. And so for Easter, she resolved to go to the pet store that had like pets you could take for like to, to the school for the kids to pet and like experience animals. So she was in charge of this. She goes to the pet store and picks them up, gets them home, and realizes that both she and I are afraid of the rabbits. <laughs> and neither of us is, like, willing to pick up the rabbit and move it into the containers as necessary to transport it to school. And, like, a family friend had to come over and help us, like, wrangle the rabbits. But I remember them being so much bigger and, like, kickier and flusterier <laughs> than I expected them to be and being absolutely terrified of these things. Yeah, rabbits are a bad choice for that. <laughs> we got through it. We got through it. What's on your mind tonight? That's good. Yeah, I was going to – so I, I tried to talk about this the last time, but I didn't really know what to say because I hadn't talked to anyone who was, you know, experienced with how to deal with people. Um, I'm kind of a blank slate when it comes to that stuff. But I was talking with my therapist, and he mentioned this concept called mental rigidity. Mm-hmm. Mental rigidity. There mm-hmm. it is. I, I, I can't say certain words. <laughs> basically, what the concept is, is that people, not just people with personality disorders or something like that, or with autism, but in anyone, they can kind of close off their mind to different possibilities because they just become too ingrained in what they're currently doing right now. And I realize that obviously everyone suffers from that. But, but in the whole midst of this forced to vote drama... Mm-hmm. I have a feeling that there was not a very large number of people who were open to having their minds changed. Mm -hmm. They either immediately latched onto it like I did. And I'll admit I I was that person to Mm -hmm. immediately latch onto it and not even see the counter argument versus Mm -hmm. the person who would immediately disdain it Mm -hmm. and wouldn't see the counter argument. Right. Mm -hmm. So like it's the kind of the mental rigidity. And then you have this whole fight going on and everyone's speaking past each other. No mm. one's speaking to each other because they're on different wavelengths. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's part of why I had to mute. Like, I know this is maybe counterintuitive what I'm about to say, but I got to a point where I like you guys, I don't know how closely you're following it when it was happening, but like, I really felt like I did everything I could possibly do. I had several episodes about it on my own show. I went on crystal and Sager. um, on rising a million times to talk about it. I went, I had a debate with uh, Ben Burgess and Natalie Shore and Adam Gaffney on the Katie Halper show. I went on the Jimmy Dore show once the one time in my entire life until this week that I've been on the Jimmy Dore show, despite much exaggerated claims of us being in cahoots <laughs> by, <laughs> by uh, Chan Huger. Um, I, I wrote an article about it in current affairs uh, in the days before Christmas when I had plenty of other things to do. I spoke about it at the Medicare for all rally that I attended. I mean, I don't know what else I could. I tweeted endlessly, 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 every argument in the world, you know, submitted to every, every debate. Every, I, I debated Sam Cedar for three hours about it. Like I said, I, like I engaged in every way I knew how and made my opinion clear every way I knew how. And people we're still talking about Kevin McCarthy being Speaker of the House. We're still talking about the fact that 
uh, whatever, you know, it was, it was fine for them to ask for Paygo behind the scenes without demanding more, the more that they could have only demanded by using their leverage. There were people saying that, you know, you can't do this because people, the people in America just love Nancy Pelosi so much. The media backlash isn't worth getting Nancy Pelosi out of office. You know, those were the arguments. Like I'm not, I don't have to lie. Like it's all public. Every aspect of this conversation has been public. And so for people to still be making those arguments now, they never stop. And now they're redoubling and trying to do the revisionist history. Like, that's why at a certain point I had to mute people, not because I didn't want to engage in the argument, but like, it's like, there's, it's free. Like I've given as much of myself as I can, all of the information, everything that I think is out there. You're not saying anything new to me. So why should I be having to rehash my arguments back to you? Go, go do, you could do a, it's like a paint by numbers kit. Pick your, <laughs> pick your medium and you can go and recreate what my response would be to you in any circumstance, because I've, I've answered everything that could possibly be said. Um, and so it's been kind of frustrating to see, you know, you know, people saying debate me, debate me at this point. It's like some people I will debate. Like I've never had a conversation with Anna. I've been happy to have her on the show and have a conversation with her about it. But if I've already spent three hours of my life debating you, like I have been Burgess, I, and you're not saying anything new. You're just trying to rehabilitate yourself. Like we all know what you said. It's right there on the record. You didn't think it was a good strategy. Okay. You've been proven wrong. I'm no one's, I, I, I don't need to convince you of anything. No one's, you know, no one's listening to you anymore at this point. So why do I need to convince you of anything? Anna has a huge profile. You know, I've never spoken to her about this. I would love an opportunity to bury the hatchet. So, yes. But, like, I don't know. It is, it is, you're right. It is a kind of cognitive rigidity. Um, and I think a lot of it is, I think, I don't know what your, psych- your, your therapist says about whether the rigidity is, is exacerbated by, let's say, an emotional response to a person. Like, the way Jimmy Dore's, you know, uh, presence in all of this seems to have yes. triggered so many people. But, like, I just never understood like if you have an issue with any part of the strategy, your argument is with the squad, not me, not with Jimmy. It should be, hey, squad members, I agree with force the vote, but here, 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 pick my plan, pick my plan, do my plan. Why aren't you doing my plan? But none of the people who are now claiming that they had some concern with some aspect of the strategy ever were pitching their own strategy to the squad. They were simply trying to kill everybody else's strategy. Um which is why, like, again, to bring this back to today's episode, like, some of the comments that we've had already about, like, well, I don't think that we should do Andrea's mom. I think that we should do, what, you know, something else. It's like my instinct is if, if you're if, – if you have an idea, do it. But I have very little patience for critiques of other people's ideas that have nothing to do with you, that, like, aren't – don't prevent you from doing what you want to do anyway. Because at a certain point, it feels like I'm sorry. It feels like an op. Like it feels like it, it feels like a, 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 a like a design to intentionally just take the steam out of everything. And we should just be yes anding, yes anding everything, unless it is legitimately unless there's a legitimate argument, it will do harm to a movement. And given that there is no Medicare for all movement in this country right now, the idea that forcing the vote for Medicare for all would have hurt the movement going back and listening to everybody use that language. Oh, it'll hurt the movement. It honestly makes me want to vomit in my mouth. It's disgusting because mm-hmm. those same people have sat around on their asses for two years and also have done absolutely nothing for the so-called movement. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. The, what I was going to say was that I don't, obviously I'm not a therapist or anything. I just go to one. So I'm not an expert or anything, but 
the the best advice that he gave me was to simply look try and try and look from the other person's perspective. So if you were that person with all of their biases, their history and everything, how would you perceive this? And then if you still disagree even after that, how do you how how do you speak to them in a way that would make sense to them? Because then again, the question or the problem is you're just talking through different bandwidths. And the examples I'm going to give, okay? Mm-hmm. Like they could be very incendiary in this context, but I but I need to say this, which is mm-hmm. that after they passed the bill through through both houses of Congress and Biden signed it to provide protections for gay marriage. Now it wasn't actual protections. It was I I I, I would assume ever everyone here knows the details, but it, basically the point is that you had all the people in the right wing media saying this was going to be used to shut down churches. And then you had a bunch of other people in, like, how could you say the, like, the not Fox News mainstream media? And then even on the left-wing side, too, I checked the different places. Kyle Kalinske did it. So did TYT. And, of course, their names have already been mentioned gratuitously through various episodes. So I don't think they're going to care if I mention it here. But the point is that it seemed like they couldn't even fathom the possibility that a church would want to continue their practices around marriage, regardless of what the state says. It seemed like there was some like mental dissonance where mm-hmm. they just couldn't think of the idea that a church wouldn't just do what the government says to do, which is in some ways explicitly what the church is not supposed to do. If you just look at the history of the church, there was all these examples where the church was told, to go worship Caesar and they said no and they were you know and they were hurt for it. So the point is that like I don't know what percentage of leftists are this way, but there's definitely a contingent of secular leftists. They just can't see why a religious person would be a religious person period, which means that even if they do read the text, even if they try to learn about it, they're not really learning about it. They're just learning how to attack it if you know what i mean they're not yeah, coming to that. it earnestly what do yeah, you say I think there is a realm of of like topics where it's so like we feel so kind of morally righteous that it almost feels like to entertain the counter argument is to give some quarter to some repugnant beliefs i think gay marriage is one of those places i think immigration is another one where mm-hmm. it can be very difficult to have conversations about people's look i think the studies show that they're it's it's not it's vastly overstated by the right, but there of course the the like lower tier of American labor is hurt by uh, undo- the existence of undocumented people who are willing to do work under the table or have to do work under the table rather, and we can have a conversation about how to change that in a way that inures the benefit of undocumented people and the American labor force. But there's some people who don't even want they just say anybody who says anything like that just hates immigrants and is a racist. Right. And I think this gay marriage thing is another one where it's like to acknowledge that a religion like I'm not religious. I don't believe in any of that stuff. I think there's a lot of harmful stuff in there and there's a lot of beautiful stuff in there. But like the idea that their institution that is built based on some book from 2000 years ago doesn't want to do a gay marriage and they should be able to do that. Like, okay, marriage, we're taking it out of the religious realm. It's a civil right bestowed by the state. Anybody can get married if they want. And if somebody in their house of worship doesn't want to do it, then no one's going to force them to do it. Like, 
I don't know. I'll take arguments as to why that's a bad compromise, but it's it's somebody else's thing. Like I can't go into somebody's family and tell them to raise their kid to love Star Trek. Like some things are just private. And religion seems very obviously to be one of those things. So I, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying, but I also understand why it's very difficult for people to acknowledge certain counter arguments when it feels like even acknowledging them is validating them, especially when the subject is so deeply rooted in people's human rights and dignity. Well, this is the thing is that I grew up in one of those churches you're describing. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, if you want to know what the name of the church body is, you, if, if you really want to. But the, the point is that it's a conservative church body. It's a traditional Orthodox church body. And we have our beliefs written down very strongly. So the thing about it is that even in spite of that, when I went to school, I still learned about evolution. And I went out intentionally and read The Origin of Species. I wasn't persuaded. And I also read Richard Dawkins' book, um, the God Delusion, which I don't know if you know about that book, but you know, The God Delusion, it kind of speaks for itself. And I also wasn't convinced, and I've read other books as well that are different from what my ideology was at the time. And I found that it was a really good thing to read it earnestly mm-hmm. and with an open point of view, because even if I end up disagreeing with it, like I wasn't persuaded by any of those books I mentioned. But now I can interface with it in a way that is productive as opposed to just sharing out of context Bible verses with each other. Mm -hmm. And then me on the other side having to be like, well, but if taken in context and this other thing and this other thing, I find that so frustrating, really. Like, again, people are just talking past each other. and, And if they're not willing to engage with the ideas earnestly, and take the risk of being persuaded for the other side, they're never going to advance. They're just going to stay stuck in their little, you know, rut. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this before I let you go. I'm, I'm, do you think there's some aspect of the force the vote, vote counter argument that I haven't um, sufficiently engaged with? I think the thing that you, the one that I, I don't like to engage with this because I have a certain predisposition towards rebellion, towards anti-institutionalism. <laughs> Mm. But the but the are uh, the part of the argument that people tended to ignore was the institutional argument. So people who are very risk averse, people who are very institutional in their in their worldview, they would be against something like that because they think it's a threat to the institutional power that the squad and other people like like Jayapal have gotten. And their goal isn't necessarily to have a policy, but to build an institution, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Now, and and I don't understand that. Like, I can't agree with that because that's not my ideology. But I can understand why someone who is risk-averse and an institutionalist, which are a lot of people, especially at places like TYT, right? They might have shades of rebellion, but... Fundamentally, they're institutionalists. I think we can agree with that. A, a lot of these people are just institutionalists. That's why I think they were against it, because mm-hmm. they were unwilling to take the risk involved. But there's other people like me and Jimmy or you or, you know, the Kyle Kalinske, et cetera, who were more risk, who, who, who could take more risk, felt more comfortable with it, so they didn't care about the consequences. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. I, I, I feel like that 
point was engaged with pretty openly. I mean, I rewatched the first half of the um, Sam Cedar debate the other night to refresh my memory since everyone was making all these claims about what they did and did not say at the time. And at one point, um, you know, we're having the conversation about the media fallout and who's going to side with who, like, is everyone going to side with Pelosi or not? And for one, I think that, I think that Sam overstated how much people like Pelosi polls at the time showed that three quarters of Americans wanted to step down. I completely agree that the corporate media was going to rally around Pelosi, but the corporate media isn't your goal. The goal is, are the people actually behind you? And so we were having that back and forth. But my, my other point would just be like, what I was trying to get across was I don't, I don't actually care because I think you're right. I, I am not interested in protecting the institution to the extent that the critique of the Republicans right now is, oh, your house is in disarray. You're not going to get to the good business of governing. I think that most Americans, there's like a single digit approval rating of government. Nobody gives a shit. Nobody thinks they're doing anything important anyway. So I'm not interested in protecting the reputation of the Democratic Party or the, the House leadership or anything like that. And that is just a fundamental difference of opinion. Mm-hmm. And I wish I think you're right when we're having these conversations. What, what, I mean, when we were having the debate with Sam Cedar, there was this like moment where I was like there were several moments, actually, where we we're just like, look, we're just going to that's just a, that's just a disagreement. We see the world differently. And we identified those those things. And you can't really move on. But I felt like it was actually a constructive debate because we got to the core of the disagreement, this fundamental difference of opinion about what matters, who should be protected and whose opinions we, we should be seeking ultimately. Um, which is why I'm, I'm frustrated that the debate soured so much after it had wrapped the next day on the internet. But I think, I think you're right. Sometimes you have to be able to sit with, you know, no, don't keep arguing, like get to the root of the thing that you just can't fundamentally get past because you see the world differently and then wait, wait to see if the world validates one hypothesis or the other. Um, and I am of the belief that the world validated my hypothesis, uh, this week, um, I just wish that people, when they got to that point where you're just at that kind of like perspectival impasse, accepted it and didn't see it as like, like, let's dig more, let's fight more, or you're a bad faith actor, or you just, you don't agree with me because, you know, it's just, we see the world differently. I I get into this with my conversations with conservatives all the time, or, or with Robbie even. If we get to a place where I know that he disagrees with some policy because he fundamentally just believes government should be small and fundamentally doesn't believe in the government's ability to say run an airline or something else that I think should be nationalized. There's no point in arguing. I, I, I understand where he's coming from. Frankly, I respect where he's coming from. It's at least ideologically consistent, even if I think it has really inhumane downstream effects and just leave it. And that's up to the audience just to decide what they think. Yeah, well, I want to leave. I want to leave uh, the rest of the time for everybody else. But I wanted to point to what you, your interview with Zogby, mm-hmm. the one who the, the that was the one interview where I think you got as close as 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 you can get, just about to the heart of the problem. So when so when you were questioning Zogby about why is he engaged in this institution. Mm-hmm. Right. You were kind of I, I don't remember the exact wording of the question, but you basically asked him point blank. Why is why is it important that we're in the Democratic Party? Mm-hmm. What What is it about this political party that is important for the movement and for our goals? And so I think that even with someone like uh, your, your co-host at Rising, mm-hmm. if you instead of talking about the surface level, go down 
and simply ask him about these fundamental questions. And some of those you actually can judge empirically. Like you can judge empirically rather than the government can run a healthcare system. Yeah, I mean, so like, I th- think that that's actually, true. It, that is empirical. Some of it isn't. But a lot of it you can verify with empirical facts. And because no one does that part, they, they kind of do the horse race. I, I mean, the, you know, the, the issue is that, stuff. No, no Robbie one does isn't, that Robbie isn't persuaded by the fact that there are a million peer countries that have some kind of some version of a universal or nationalized healthcare system that runs just fine. And I'm, I, we don't have the time and space in the show to keep getting into back and forth about, well, they have long lines in Canada and long lines in England and people fly from England to the United States to get their uh, surgery. And like, I just can't bear it and we don't have mm-hmm. time for it. Um, but, you know, I think the, the, the audience sees what's true. I don't, I don't have to get into that argument with Robbie because at the end of the day, Millions of Americans have had the experience of not being able to pay for health care and, and losing a loved one or suffering greatly mm-hmm. or going into bankruptcy as a consequence. So, you know, libertarians can sit there and libertarian all day. Reality has endorsed the, the alternative. Right? Reality has endorsed Bernie. Reality has endorsed the mm-hmm. left, just like reality just uh, endorsed for, forced the vote. But look, thank you so much. This has been a, a, a good little mental exercise. I appreciate you calling yeah, in. Before Nathan. I go, so one more thing, which is that I understand it's, it might be really difficult for someone in this chat or who is, who is an atheist or agnostic. But if you want to understand at a basic level what you're opposing when you say, I'm not a Christian or something like that, just read the four Gospels in the book of Romans all the way through, no preconditions, and take it for what it is. Mm-hmm. And just take the risk that you might be persuaded. Because that's what I did when I read all these other books. And I'm the better for it. Yeah, well, Nathan, I will say that I think most people have read the Gospels, the Bible. I think most people who are agnostic or atheist grew up in a religious, most people were raised in a religious background, especially anybody over the age of like 40. I was anomalous in not being raised that way, but I always had an interest in religion, was very excited to take courses where I was academic reasons compelled to read the bible have religious family members you know have an uncle who's a minister like all of these things and it's not a lack of familiarity at least on my part but i do think that people who if you're going to be engaging in these debates i don't think there's that many debates about religion these days to be honest yeah Um, that's probably for the better um but yeah everyone should generally be informed but thanks for calling in nathan Yes, and the last thing I'm going to mention is the... Nathan, uh, you've, you've last thing me now like three I times. i got to move on. I'm sorry, Nathan. Pache mode. Amazing artist. You should look into them. All right. Thanks, Nathan. Keep the Keep faith, the faith. All right. Peter, I'm coming to you. What's on your mind tonight? You with us, Peter? Oh, I just heard a little something, Peter. Are you with us? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. What's on your mind tonight? Well, you called on me. <laughs> I've been trying for such a long time. Um, the one time I was close to actually talking to you, there was a fire in my building. And I had oh, to no. <laughs> I'm glad I got to you. You seem like a new face. That's why I called on you. So what's on your what's on your mind? So a bunch of things. Let's see. So I'm thinking about the guest today, Morton, and art and politics. And one of the things that he said that I thought was interesting was – Sort of talking about creating space for the silence. Did you remember he said something about creating space wherein people can sort of stop and think, and so that there's sort of the the purpose that art can serve 
and sort of absurdism can serve is to create sort of sense of ambiguity where people can say like, I don't even really know what that means, but they're mm-hmm. forced to think about things, right? So I was thinking about that and then thinking about what you were just saying about how the problem isn't really that we need to have more people on board, right? That we have enough of the sort of a coalition. The problem is power and sort of fighting. I don't know. I guess I'm thinking right now that that seems to be a really interesting tension because on the one hand, there is this idea of, yeah, art being used to sort of create new consciousness, right? Art not being used sort of in a polemic way to sort of say, you know, here's the truth and we're going to propagandize you through art, but using art as, you know, the, a way to sort of expand consciousness and all of this that can ultimately lead to justice and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Versus what you're saying, which is that, okay, that's great. And, you know, it's great to sort of involve as many people as we can. But right now, we actually kind of have enough people that are, you know, sort of like-minded. And the problem is sort of what mobilizing them and, and fighting, right? And, and, and figuring out how to grab power. Um, and so I don't know, I guess I'm just wondering, what do you think about that in terms of, um, yeah, power versus persuasion? Because especially because well, you yeah, always. I, I, yeah. I would add accountability to that. I mean, uh, the, the word that people are looking for all the time when they're like, we need more people. It's like, what do you need more people for? You don't need to convince more people. That's where people go. Like, that's where the mind goes. Oh, we got more people. Yeah, sure. We need to convince people. No, no, no. You have the people. What you need is the reason you're focused on this idea of people in your head is because the hope is that because we live in an alleged democracy, if you have enough people, there will start to be a political response because people who don't agree, you know, politicians who don't agree with will be forced to capitulate to the power, right? Is that the idea? Yeah, the people who won't side with the community will have will not be able to stay in office and that there will be an accountability mechanism. The problem is there's no accountability mechanism because we don't have a democracy. So, um, I yeah, I mean, I I thought I thought that what Professor Morton was saying was about that was interesting. He told an, a, a longer anecdote in the article than he um, he mentioned it, but didn't elaborate as much in the episode where he talks about how after the soup, the stop oil soup protest, he was ruminating on the fact that he had been in some battle about his own um, garden uh, and the chemical exposure that was happening in his community and it helped him to kind of form an argument about what it meant for there to be so much outrage about a non-toxic substance being splashed in a painting that was protected when his children were being exposed to toxic substances without any barriers or protection and in response to no with no outrage whatsoever and he, he was talking about that as, you know, an argument that was enabled by the ambiguity of the suit protests and the open. Right. The fact that they did it all forced the, the question, right? It raised this, the juxtaposition or the dissonance. Right. Right. And I, I found myself, I'm so sorry for all of my um, glass onion spoilers. <clears throat> but I found, <laughs> I saw that yesterday, by the way, and I, I really liked it. It was hilarious. It was good. <laughs> yeah. My, my bad. But you guys, like, didn't you guys all watch it over the, over the holidays? <laughs> like the, the time's up. All right. But I was really <laughs> I was really interested in this idea between like how we're all rooting, like we're rooting for the ending of that movie and what happens. Yeah. I won't spoil it again for those who don't you know, but like we were all you know, the, the the difference between how we thought about the art in that movie, which was 
much like the most valuable art in the world that has a lot of like weird emotional resonance for people for reasons just because it's so famous and we all grew up thinking about it and learning about it and the art the van gogh which is also very famous obviously and notable but the, but was ultimately unharmed and how in the context of a you know a well constructed movie it can help us to reprioritize and understand that it was worth it it was mm-hmm. worth it to bring down this bad guy who was going to endanger so many human lives to destroy a piece of art, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's the whole point of the movie. Yeah. And in the Stop Soup protests, like, there's just, like, none of that. And the art right. didn't even get destroyed. <laughs> and the art didn't even get destroyed, right. Yeah. Yeah, I was pretty proud of myself for that one. In the <laughs> I might have to write up an article, but people are going to be mad at me for spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> You should do that. So then, so then, yeah, okay, so then the question is, yeah, where does this leave us then? Okay, so let's let's say that it's, that the soup thing is, is success. Like, what does success look like for the soup thing? It looks like people think, oh, my God, we've been so stupid to not take seriously these real issues and our priorities are out of alignment. And we see that now because we got all up in arms about this painting that wasn't even really threatened. And so now let us do what? Like, then what? Because well, that's that, going to back to your power issue, right? Which yeah, is that's the thing. It's not about convincing people. So I think the, right. the critique of the soup, the soup thing, I think that's more legitimate. The more legitimate critiques are like, was it focused enough on BP? Did right. it highlight enough that the problem is that P- BP funds its museums and basically buys off the public with goodwill from these, um, you know, community projects? When at the end of the day, what we want is accountability for BP, and that. You know the Brit- London Museum, wherever British Museum, wherever this was, right. um, should have divest should divest from this oil money, you know, right. or, or whatever it is. I so in other words, that maybe there should have been sort of like an ask or something, an action item along yes. with, the, yeah, yes, and that that could have mobilized pressure then for for the museum, right? So maybe so circumventing what government and sort of speaking directly to the museum and sort of shaming the museum to do something mm-hmm. different. Exactly. Exactly. But the idea, the idea of the protest, and I, I think that Morton's right, like we're talking about it. Maybe it's mm-hmm. just because I'm obsessed with it and I keep bringing it up on this goddamn podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. It's like I have a hard time. When I see people acting, my instinct is never to be like, meh. It's like, yeah, fuck yeah, let's build on it. Even the LaRouche guys, like everyone was like, oh, why are you talking about the, the folks protesting AOC and J- Jamal Bowman at these events? They're li- with LaRouche. They're, LaRouche is crazy. Honey, I don't know who LaRouche is. All I know is that somebody was acting and saying things that I agreed with and uh-huh. calling for accountability and speaking truth to power. And I'm going to yes and that until they start doing something different and their yeah. interests are no longer in line with mine. I just yeah. I don't understand the impulse to shit on everything. Yeah. That's a good question. I don't know what it is either. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, well, look, it's other... nice to talk to you, Peter. I'm glad you got through, and I hope to see you in the queue again. Thank you, Bree. Take care. Keep the faith. Keep the faith, Peter. All right, Isaac. How are you doing this evening? Okay, now can you hear me? <clears throat> Loud and clear. Yeah, the, it, like a notification or whatever popped up on the screen and I hit somewhere else and it disappeared. I thought that I just disappeared, but uh, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. I ran five miles today. I found a new running trail 
Ever since I moved to my new apartment in February, I've been struggling with my outdoor runs because I'm no longer near the monuments and I no longer have this wonderful loop that I used to have that was so scenic and terrific. But I finally hacked it and I figured out where to run in my new neighborhood and I'm on a roll. So I'm feeling Wait, we're- full of endorphins, but very uh, a little on the tired side. So I'm about to collapse into a heap when this call is over. Were you previously getting running inspiration from the monuments? Um, I prefer, the, I think the onerous part of running is getting bored. So I have, I have a really hard time ri- running mm. longer distances on a treadmill. But I need to have a destination in mind. And if the destination is like attractive, scenic, and makes me feel like I've really accomplished something, then I'm not thinking about the fact that, oh, man, I had to run two miles to get here, so this is going to be a four-mile run. I'm thinking, I just, I got to get there. And then once you're there, you have to get home, right? When you're on a treadmill, you're like, oh, God, (laughs) is it still only half a mile? (laughs) Like, it's just, you know. So I need to have, I need to have, like, a scenic loop. So I used to have this great loop where it was about a mile to get from my old house to the reflecting pool. But then I would run. There's like this other pool that's next to the reflecting pool that people don't go to. That's like a natural pool with ducks on it and weeping willows around it. And I think it's just gorgeous. So a short run would just be to that pool and home. That's two miles. A medium run is to go there, run a lap around the reflecting pool, which is another mile, and then come home. So three miles. Or the long run is to go all the way around, past the reflecting pool, around the reservoir, past the Thomas Jefferson Memorial past the MLK Memorial, back up around the Lincoln Memorial, and then back home, and that's five miles. And I really missed having that, like, five-mile run where you get to see everything. There's cherry blossoms sometimes. Mm. It's just – it's it, D.C. is a beautiful – it's a great running city. It's all kind of flat over there. You're not dealing with hills and crap. Like, it's just, it was a really great run. Um, but that's all to say that I am feeling good but tired. That was a long way for me to answer your question. But how are you, Isaac? And what's on your mind tonight? I mean, I'm, I'm good. What's on my mind, uh, which was this other terrible icebreaker, uh, was uh, Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend's balls. <laughs> Wait, those are back in the news? No, they're not. And that's why it's on my mind. <laughs> what? You're talking about the thing with the COVID vaccines from like a year or so ago? Okay, so long ago, and I have to say that being in that situation, that man, like, that must have been so distressing after definitely having gotten the vaccine and definitely having had that happen. And then I never saw anything about that, like, anywhere in the news. So it was a legit medical anomaly. And then now here we are, like, years later, and we haven't gotten a single update because it wasn't real, my dude. <laughs> what? That man, Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend or whatever, just cheated on his partner, got an STD, and was blaming it on a COVID vaccine. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> fuck that. I'm no longer a barb. <laughs> I mean, Nikki, anyway. Look, I'm not, I'm not trying to get the barbs after me, so I'm not going to say anything about Nicki, but there's some <laughs> problematic associations that people, you know, with the stuff with her brother and like there's just a lot there's a lot there it's none of my business but but substantively isaac politically what's on your mind what's the episode or anything else (laughs) that's going on on the world i again shitty icebreaker uh (laughs) i 
so from today, I liked he your guest was talking about like the what was it like the punk scene and community and mm -hmm. then also red bandanas, which I felt so hard. There were things that have been said in this show previously where people were like, I, I don't know, I, I had been wanting to call in and say like, yo, we need like a symbol. <laughs> like we, mm -hmm. we need to be able to see each other in the streets and just be like, yo, what's going on? And also like help raise awareness, especially just class consciousness, since that's so lacking in the country. Yeah. And um the red bandana thing was good and the music thing was interesting and i had just like a funny anecdote um in regard to fascism and music which i personally believe wholeheartedly that country music is a pipeline to fascism um oh come and... now why uh, no, is it no, genre no, no, or because of the people who are singing it and the politics of the people who most often sing it. You can't tell me Kelly Clarkson's going to make people people fascist. Everybody loves Kelly Clarkson. No, no, no. The the current thing and the and the reason that it is is because it's just like a promotion of like nationalism and symbolism and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And I'm I'm not going to say like Kelly Clarkson is, but <laughs> other people. I mean, like we have Ted Nugent. Like <laughs> you you can't say that that guy's not a fascist. He What's he up is. to? I'm not. I guess I'm not really following what's going on in the country scene. Okay, so. So I just have someone in my life who's really into country music and mm. like, and I was just really like, I grew up kind of in the punk scene mm -hmm. and I was curious because we were talking music uh, and I asked them if like, cause they're really into all this stuff. I asked them if they ever go to local shows and I asked like several of the people in this group who are really into country music and they never go to local shows. So they don't know local musicians. They can't like build a community, but they're still building something that's on kind of like a nationalistic scale, which I, I just thought was interesting. Mm. Yeah. I was thinking about, um, there was some, is, is it Brandy? Uh, Brandy something. Uh, she sounds like somebody else's name. Brandy Carlisle. Brandy. She that's... was a she was a Bernie surrogate. I think that that's of country. I think she's country. I think she's a really big deal. But I'm sorry, just my own ignorance is um showing. Oh, they're saying in the chat that she also is not country. Oh, well, fuck yeah. it, guys. I don't know. Damn. <laughs> like I can't win. I, I, I did not grow up with country music. We listened to a lot of James Taylor, but that's more folk than country. Um, Loretta Lynn. And, and people like, in the chat are saying there's a lot of historical country singers that were very labor-oriented. Dolly Parton, everybody loves Dolly. Right, and, and we're all going to talk about, like, the boss and stuff like that. Well, I don't even know if he's country. But, like, like older stuff, that's not what I'm talking about. Like, right as it stands currently, it's just, like, iterative nonsense dixie yeah, chicks can... they went they went hard against bush and they never recovered sorry, sorry the chicks they're just the chicks the now chicks. Yeah. <laughs> my bad sorry no and and i i don't know it's it's a whole thing i don't want to get into it like the actual thing that i wanted to talk about mm -hmm. um was i feel like i have been gaslit for the past two years 
in regard to what happened with the Bernie campaign. Mm. And because I keep seeing, like, people keep saying, like, you know, Bernie dropped out, he took all our money, he did all this stuff, but wasn't one of the things that happened in 2016 that was actually, like, a legitimately big victory for Bernie was that he got written into the rules of the DNC and how they do primaries that if you get 25% of the vote, that means that you have uh, like the power of, I don't know, like you, you have, I, the word is escaping me, <laughs> but, but like you're able to, uh, Again, the word is escaping me. <laughs> Can you just, just describe the nature of the power? What what do they get out the, of it? So is it like uh, some power on bargaining the... power? Bargaining power. Uh and what how would that be expressed? Yeah, Lysol just said leverage. Yeah, bargaining power. And and I'm not sure like to the extent that this matters. And again, like the DNC is probably just a private organization or whatever, but I, I thought that like he dropped out, but he also got 30% of the vote. And I thought that that meant that he had significant sway in the platform going forward from mm -hmm. there. I see what you're saying. So let me ask you this. Um, do you feel like that's made a difference in your life? Mm -hmm. Or in the country. Uh, I, look, I'm not trying to be no. glib. But like someone earlier just referenced the interview with um, Jim Zogby, which I agree, I think was that interview, the Ash Colra interview. I mean, there have been some interviews that haven't been as like flashy in terms of the bigness of the name or the intensity of the conversation, but which I think have been really, really important in terms of us getting kind of collectively to where we are mentally about the way forward and which paths are actually just like dupe op paths that we should ignore. Um, the, the other one was the, the, the Bernie guy um, around the time of fourth of vote that I spoke to uh, who was former NNU, former DSA, um, who was the healthcare, I forget what the word was, but the healthcare liaison for the Bernie campaign and who was saying the new plan is just to get Gavin Newsom to be president in 20 years or whatever. I'm sorry. I'm being very reductive. That's not what he said. He made a better argument than that. But anyway, the Jim Zogby interview revealed that having position on the platform committee, being able to put forward rules for the vote, all of that doesn't really matter at the end of the day. If no one's willing to even second your proposal um, for a vote, they wouldn't even vote on his, on his proposal to get dark money out of politics. And we see, we've seen from Republicans last week, how to get dark money out of poli or not dark money, but how to get at least uh, Kevin McCarthy's super PAC from putting his thumb on the scale in Republican primaries. Well, withhold your vote for <laughs> uh, Speaker Speaker uh, McCarthy or prospective Speaker McCarthy, and you can get those kinds of concessions. But as we've seen, it just doesn't seem to ever be happening through so-called traditional means, even using millions of dollars to come second place in a uh, presidential race and getting positions and influence on the committee doesn't get you actually the rule changes that you want. Or you get something on the platform, like look what's on the platform, $15 minimum wages on the platform. Who cares? We're like, you know, Biden, Biden seems to be not into, into it. 
You know, I don't know. Am I being too cynical? No, no. And, and what I'm saying is not to say that like, you know, he got this big win, but I think that Bernie probably where he was recognized that he had that, even though it's probably not legally binding. The DNC, mm-hmm. I, again, is like a private thing, but I don't think that in his mind, he was just like selling everybody out. And- no, I don't, I don't think that either, but this is what's frustrating. There are some things that seem like it's almost naive to rely on. Like, look, when Bernie dropped out and the, I'm sorry, I just got distracted because I saw a text on my mom saying that she was listening on the call-in and I realized that I've been cussing a little bit. I need to clean it up. <laughs> yeah, no, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, Bree's mom. Uh, sorry, what was I just saying? I just got, I completely derailed myself uh, by looking at my text messages. DNC privatization, Bernie, not. Oh yeah, the second he dropped out, right? And everyone made a big deal of me saying that I didn't endorse Biden. The reason why is because I was, I was actually frankly like so confused why Bernie, like, okay, Ber- the Bernie campaign is over. My mind goes into what's next. Bernie mm-hmm. didn't endorse Hillary Clinton for, like, it wasn't an unprecedentedly long amount of time. It wasn't, like, as long as the Hillary people make it sound. Like, oh, he jeopardized her whole campaign because he wouldn't endorse her fast enough. No, like, that's malarkey. But, you know, there were weeks that went by during which he was trying to extract concessions. Like, this is not rocket science but bernie endorsed biden after like a handful of days it was like less than a week and 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 i was like what is the point of this but moreover even if you did say you got some concession there's nothing to hold him accountable so you never made him commit to anything out loud on the record you never there's no built-in mechanics there's no like you know fail-safe mechanisms I mean, there, there could have been, Bernie could have said, if you don't fulfill your promise to do everything in your power to advance a $15 minimum wage, I'm telling you right now, in April of 2020, that I will be using my vote on the Senate and what was already known, what, what we already knew was going to be a very close Senate to torpedo your entire administration. I'm telling you that right now. Bernie was in that position. Bernie could have been mansion or cinema. You know? Yeah, but he, but they chose I, not to. And apparently he, he was like, they had their little Zoom talk and he was like, oh, you're a good guy. You're my friend. And uh, you like all this stuff, right? You like a $15 minimum wage? And Bernie and Biden goes, yeah, man, uh, totes, totes my goats. $15 minimum wage sounds good. And now we're all sitting here two years later and it's ridiculous. 100%. I, all that I'm saying is that like Bernie, I don't, I don't know. I don't think that in his position and this is probably going to piss people off but like every single time this comes around that like it's absolutely imperative that everybody does this like maybe he actually legitimately felt that when he was running in 2020 and i look i think that he legitimately felt everything i don't think that bernie is a bad faith actor maybe i'm naive for thinking that but i i don't think even for a second i hope nothing i've ever said implies that i think that he is a bad faith actor. In fact, I don't think that most of the squad members, I think I got to say, I think Pramila Jayapal is a bad faith actor, but I don't think most of the squad members as colossally disappointing as they've been are Machiavellian schemers who are also bad faith actors. I don't think that's the case. 
But I think that people are making bad decisions. They're making bad decisions and they're giving up their leverage in ways that are lead to very predictable outcomes. And I'm just getting a little tired of seeing something as bad, being able to completely predict it. And then three months later, having to live through some media cycle of, Oh, I guess it was a bad idea to bifurcate the build back better bill. Ah, shucks. You know, like, uh, you know, maybe, we, we, maybe maybe there's not a such thing as, quote-unquote, reserving your political capital for a later date, AOC, to Justin Jackson. To Justin Jackson? You don't remember, the the fourth of the conversation was really uh, popped off when AOC engaged with uh, Chargers football player and Bernie surrogate Justin Jackson over the issue. And that was one of the excuses that she gave to him. Oh, oh okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I do remember that. And and I agree with you about all of this, especially about, like, political capital and everything. I just, I don't know. Like, everything that I've heard or seen about Bernie Sanders, like, throwing essentially the entire population of the United States under the bus just to endorse Joe Biden. I don't think that that's, I don't know the guy. You might know better than I do. I just feel like that isn't the whole story. Well, what do you mean by that? I mean, in one way that, like, I don't know about the frame throw the whole population under the bus, but, like, give up his well, power the- to fight for more. I think I mean, that's demonstrably true. I, 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 I value Bernie enormously, but I think that's demonstrably just true. Do you disagree? That he could have, do you mean by not endorsing him and saying like, hey, fuck you, like these people are behind No, there's me. a, my friend, there's a big realm of difference between saying I'm never going to endorse you, fuck you, and I am going to endorse you right now with no concessions, don't you think? Yeah, also, oh my God, your mom is listening. <laughs> she might not be, she might, I mean, that, that text was a while ago, but, but okay. go, but, 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 you know. Don't you think there's a difference there? Don't you think there's a, a whole universe of in-between that maybe he should have tried to extract concessions and draw his endorsement in exchange for something meaningful? Well, I think that that may have happened in, like, the Machiavellian sense. Just like No, it absolutely didn't happen. I promise you it didn't happen because he endorsed it, him within five days. It, to okay, have leverage, you need to draw it out. You need to yeah, it, suspend well, weeks grandstanding about what it is that you think the people deserve in this moment and why Joe Biden needs to move to accommodate, to, to earn the votes of the people who stood in line in the middle of a pandemic and voted for Bernie Sanders. And, and this whole conversation, I said, I feel like I've been get, getting gaslit. And if you say that that's actually what happened, then I'm fully on board. But we know, like, I'm not giving you any insider knowledge. I was famously not on the payroll. You know what I mean? Like, I the, the campaign ended on, what, April 8th or something like that? First week of April, about a week into April. The endorsement came down, like, April 15th or something like that. I could I could Google it, you know. But it, it, was, it was, like, a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. My belief is that Bernie felt a lot of pressure with the pandemic to end the primary he didn't want to have people exposing themselves to COVID. It was this unknown quantity. There was all of this fear that if you went and you voted, you were going to get sick and you could potentially die. There were no vaccines. You really got to put yourself in that headspace of where we were back in 2020. But I think that he felt a lot of, he felt a public obligation to end this so that the country can move forward. And I think there was also a, a, a feeling that 
he needed Biden to win because COVID was so serious that you couldn't trust Trump to implement the necessary policies and that therefore he was going to do whatever he could. I think all of those feelings are coming from a good place. I don't think he's a bad actor. I don't think it's Machiavellian. I just disagree. <laughs> this is what you're talking about before, right? Like sometimes you just disagree. You just have different priorities. You just have a different sense of what's important a long game versus a short game and all of that stuff. And, you know, I wish Bernie had behaved differently, but Bernie earned the right through a long career and a lot of hard work to make the decisions that he wanted to make. But I have the right to just disagree with them, you know? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Well, look, thanks for thanks for calling in, Isaac. I appreciate chatting with you. Yeah, yeah, you too. Keep the faith. Uh, keep the faith. Now, Steve. 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 I'm coming back to you. Are you going to come through for us, Steve? Are you going to unmute yourself, Steve? I can I can hear the collective chant. Steve, 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 Steve. Come on, Steve. We're rooting for you, Steve. Can you hear me? I'm old, so I'm going to give some history and Gandhi and the whole nine yards. I love it. Um, Eugene McCarthy ran for president in 1968. Uh, he was he was the first Bernie, and he's single issue. Vote for me, and I'm going to end the Vietnam War. And of course, they crushed him. And uh, he said uh, to me, he did the best quote about politics ever. I used to have it in my dorm room. Now, I didn't go to Harvard. I only went to Indiana University, but still. But I, I had it on my dorm room. Uh, being a politician is a lot like being a football coach. You have to be smart enough to understand the game and dumb enough to think it's important. <laughs> and I, I, I think, Bree, sometimes you get it. <laughs> sometimes all the people been talking we kind of get it sometimes you know the whole force the vote and everything of course you, of course you were right of course you took the right positions ultimately in the final analysis yeah when you go up 30,000 feet and look down at it all it doesn't matter it doesn't they wouldn't they wouldn't have gotten it and, um this government and you've said this Bree many times this government isn't for us. The, the Democrats and Republicans aren't for us. We're, we're not their constituents. Mm -hmm. So, and, and something I've done my whole life is, is uh, protest and do civil disobedience and stuff for all the issues that we've been talking about. And uh, I'm old now, and I'm too old and sickly and scared to do it now, but... Between 23 and 33, I, I probably got arrested about 
50 times doing dis mm. civil disobedience, mostly at the Concord Naval Weapons Station, which doesn't exist anymore, in, uh, in uh, the Bay Area, mm. uh, over the Central America Wars. And, mm. and it, it, it's so sad. We had a big anti-war movement for Central America, for Nicaragua, for, for El Salvador, for Honduras. We don't have anything now. They're they're gonna they're trying to start World War Three, mm -hmm. and and we have this pipsqueak little anti-war movement. Um, it's 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 bad. It's bad. You know, it's like it's like in Jaws. We're gonna need a bigger boat. Uh, mm -hmm. We need a bigger boat. Um, so, well, to, to what me, do you attribute that, Steve? Like, I mean, when you look around, I know, there's, and... yeah. How does it, you know, when you, to, to assess how it feels different and why it feels different and, and who there was to follow or was yeah, it a lack of orgs you. or is it political leadership or? It, it, it's, it's, it, 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 here, here's why, here, here's my quick analysis. There's a couple of reasons. People, people, um, you know, real estate, I don't know, your mom owns a house, right, in Cleveland or someplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Out here in the Bay Area, school teachers bought houses like in the 60s for like $23,000. Mm. And then when they retired in the 80s and 90s or 90s or 2000s, those fucking houses. Oh, I'm sorry. But <laughs> no, I, 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 no, let your mom. Your mom needs to hang up because I'm going to say fuck all. It's just say your piece. I'm sure she's not on this past your bedtime. Okay. okay so. So those houses now are worth two million bucks. See, and the it, it changes people. Mm -hmm. I yeah, you know, people. You know, what did we always used to? You know, the worst thing you could call someone is a sellout. Mm -hmm. Well, the older people are kind of are sellouts. Mm -hmm. And then um, now, now what's going on with the younger people? I'm not quite sure. Other than. The world sucks so bad that they've kind of had all the the oxygen sucked out of their lungs. Um, but but that's who we need. We need the 23 to 33 year olds, and we need the retired people. Those are the two groups who can change, who can who can do it. Right. Well, so long as you're not asking me to do anything, Steve, because I've aged out. <laughs> Just kidding. No, no. Okay, no, no, free. I am asking you because. You're not married with kids, are you? Oh, that's that's what it is. It's twenty three to thirty three, unless unless you don't have a kid and then you have more obligations. That's why the thirty three year olds are off the hook. Bree, you have the free time. I want you to convert <laughs> that time you spend running to organizing. Well, no, I have to spend the time running because otherwise I would go insane and jump off a cliff. <laughs> How do you know organizing won't make you anyway? Um, yeah. So uh, yes. So here's my here's here's my last thing I'll say uh, because you were so nice to wait for me for so long. I don't want to take everyone's time. Um, so intersectional. What, what is the enemy? Mm -hmm. You know, the the enemy is it, it can be summed up in a very simple phrase: neoliberal capitalist imperialism. Mm -hmm. We all know that, right? I mean, that's the enemy. Neoliberal mm -hmm. capitalist imperialism. You know it. Jimmy knows it. Aaron knows it. We all know it. 
uh, Chomsky knows it. People have been knowing it for for a hundred years. Well, actually, neoliberals started in 1980. But um, the whole intersectionalism stuff that people I hear people doing, and again, I'm an old white man, so whatever, just just whatever. Okay, if you if you think I'm crazy, I'm crazy. Stop talking about it. Stop talking about it. Stop talking about woke. Stop talking about intersectionalism, because we, if we're smart, we can talk to everyone, to to race activists, to uh, gender activists, to environmental activists. We can talk to everyone else and convince them that their enemy is neoliberal capitalist imperialism. It's the same enemy. So I think that that is true, except for I don't think – I think intersectionality as it was – um, invented, invented isn't quite the right, right word, but as it was first conceived, yeah. right? I know what you mean. Yeah. Helps you to talk to various groups about neoliberal capitalist imperialism in ways that connect with them and their experiences. The goal of intersectionality is not to bust into a room like the cool maid, Kool Aid man, and go, "Intersectional queen is here to tell you guys how to do it." You know, but I think. Unfortunately, too often the buzzwords just get used as props in a way that can be kind of alienating and signal your own class status and your own you know, educational status and the difference between you and the people that you're talking to. I mean, the goal isn't just to be saying the word intersectionality the way that Hillary Clinton did in 2016 right. and the way that so many people have done. When she said, right. When she said the banks, if we break up the banks, it won't end racism. Right. The, the, the goal is to realize that, hey, like intersectionality means that people are experiencing the climate crisis in different ways mm-hmm. and that I'm going to have to have a pitch for Appalachia and a pitch for the Gulf Coast right. and a pitch for Detroit and a pitch for Atlanta and a pitch for San agreed. Francisco. No, agreed. Because, what, yeah. So what you're saying is when we do the education, we have, we have to do it in a sophisticated way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. No, you're absolutely right, of course. But um, – how are we going to get the 23-year-olds, the 33-year-olds to, to – to... so here's what we did back then. We had we had something called affinity groups, mm-hmm. and we did training with activists. Uh, back then, the Quakers – the Quakers are still in the game, uh, American Friends Service Committee. You know, There's groups that train people how to do civil disobedience, and uh, you got to get the National Lawyers Guild. You, you, know, you have to have a, an organized structure, but – Here's my cunning plan that I'll leave you with. So May Day, May 1st, mm-hmm. speaking of intersectionality, so we organize, we, uh, starting now, backward planning, right? We, we start now, we organize. Mm-hmm. We get a list of th- hundreds of thousands of people together. We had something called the Pledge of Resistance back then that said, if the U.S. invades Central America, we will do civil disobedience. And I think 200,000 people signed it. Mm. But, uh, yeah, but um, so on May 1st, we go to the biggest intersection <laughs> in <laughs> in every city and town in the country and at noon, and we sit down. Mm. You know, and, and we can talk and hopefully, you know. So, and why are we there? Because neoliberal capitalist imperialism is killing us and killing the world. Anyway, yeah, I, we got to do something. Yeah, look, I, 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 I'm all for civil disobedience. I mean, 
I wish we could. I wish we could say, for example, I uh, we went to a wedding. My family and I have a family friend in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And my mother observed that everyone she talked to at the wedding seemed to have just was in recovery or had survived cancer. And she went home and Googled it because it was so anomalous that she found out that it was near, um, what is it, Three Mile Island? And that, like, there was ne- had never been a single bit of litigation around that nuclear disaster. Right. And that there was all this research about how um, – the community was downstream of all of that nuclear fallout or whatever. And the bride subsequently ended up, she's, you know, survived it, but she's ended up having a cancer diagnosis as well. So I, I, it's, that's just all to say that I wish there was a world where, I mean, I, I'm take, totally take your point, but I would love it for it to be a little bit more pointed. And again, maybe a little less jargony and say, and we're going to go to what your community and say, you guys have been wronged. Like these are the these are the corporate interests that have wronged you, and these are the political interests that have aligned with them to keep mm-hmm. you from being able to at least get um, compensation for the horrors that you've been suffering for the last couple of generations, having to live so close to this community. Mm-hmm. And here's you know here's why you should be you should trust this political project because we understand what you've gone through and we're here to fight for you very specifically in a way that's a little bit more specific than neoliberal capitalism, imperialism, but which is the stepping stone to getting people to understand the, the broader, the broader systemic issues that are bound up with that phrase. So I'm with you, Steve. I'm glad you were able to make well, it up here today. And, and, and that is such a good point. And that's why you need to spend 20 hours a week organizing Brie. <laughs> Well, I think I think that the work that I do with this show is a, a little bit of something, Steve. Well, one person you know can't do everything. Bree, you're you're on the Mount Rushmore. You're up there with with you know Jimmy Dore and Aaron and Katie and all the rest of them. You're you're amazing. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your support, Steve. I hope to see you back here in the chat soon. Okay. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Thank you so much for for giving us some insights into how things used to go down. I'm I always love to hear stories about people who are doing organizing work at a time when it seemed a little bit less uh, oof, bleak. Um, Sean, what's on your mind tonight? Oh, my God, so much. But thank you so much for calling on. I actually I have notes. I have notes, which is something I generally <laughs> don't do. You guys are so funny. <laughs> I, 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 like, you know, like, I'm arrogant, but I feel it's well-earned. But also I realize it's also kind of detrimental. So... I get arrogant about me being arrogant and knowing that I'm a little bit arrogant, but I, (laughs) I want to say a couple things. First thing I want to say, you also started a Slack group that got over like around 2000 volunteers just to work for force the vote. That's true. That, and I was a part of that. And that literally that experience was so dope that it, it is what like, I, I had so much hope there, but you know, after after that i want to do the march for medicare for all and i'll be honest like the left is filled with so much division mm-hmm. and honestly i think just america as the culture and society is filled with so much lies that that is actually the main thing that is making everything so difficult so i got this theory that i think is like actually bulletproof right now like okay. if i knew 
if I knew how to write like an actual like uh like like paper, I'd write one and like send it to psychology, you know, for this. But this is what I think is is going on, Bree. Okay. We are told so many lies that like the lies just they they become air. You know what I mean? And what we're living in right now is a condition that I think is actually pretty simple. We are living in ways because dead people told us that this is a way to live. Like Bernie Sanders is thinking and acting the way he is complete and utter disappointment to every form of, you know, value. Cause MLK is a personal hero of mine. And I know MLK is a personal hero of Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. and Bernie's failure to follow MLK's like just most basic philosophy has just, it's driven me up a wall for years now, but he thinks that the system works a certain way. You know what I mean? Like, well, you, you, you go along to get along because why does he think it? Because dead people told him, you know what I mean? That's how the system works. And we live with so many lies. We live with so many expectations that like the system works. So the system is stable. You know what I mean? And I think that's like where people like Sam Cedar are coming from. You know what I mean? I think that's where a lot of people in the world are coming from. You know what I mean? There, there's lies in the world. There's lies in America and there's lies that people tell themselves. So Sam Cedar is not. Yeah, go ahead. Can you be a little bit more specific for me and for the audience about the lies? I mean, I think I get what you're picking. I'm picking up what you're putting down, but I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Okay, for sure, for sure. So, like, I'll just be honest. Um, There is uh, the climate reports. They're they're bad. You know what I mean? But we have this, like, level of comfortability. Like, it's going to be okay. You know what I mean? Like... It, it, and and the, and the problem comes about like you know the, the the real severity of the climate comes about to the point that I think people feel comfortable with society, and like they make the connection. Well, society, society, and society is going along with this. So you know, like, is all society going to be wrong? And that's the lie. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They it's like can't the Milgram imagine. experiment. It's like no one else is reacting to the fire in the room so there must not really be an issue with the fire in the room exactly like yeah you guys know go ahead and and so what has happened is and and this even goes to the point of personal conditions we've so we've built these lies these lies one after another after another even the cia came out and said like you know when when everything the american people believes is lie you know our op will be successful people also even in my organizing experience, like whenever there's a disagreement, they're not looking for the truth. They're looking for agreement. And so they build up these like communities, these ideas like, oh, I'm right because these five people agree with me. And like, that's not how two plus two equals four works. You know what I mean? But it's how people have learned to deal with this situation that accuracy comes from having enough people who agree with you. And so the problem is, is we don't have a basis for just general communication. What is accurate? What is not accurate? And once you get to the point of the level that you're at and the level of like a Sam Cedar, what you're dealing with is you're dealing with tons of people with a thousand different narratives, with a thousand different options that are just looking to fall back on their support group of public. And the actual conversation about what is true and what's factual is completely gone. It's dissipated. What we're now talking about is, oh, I feel this or that, you know what I mean? Or I benefit from this way and that way. It's just like, like. 
everything we're talking, like money itself, like, like, I'll just be honest here. The major problem with humanity right now is our entire focus of society and socialization and connection is built upon money. Our entire government is money. It, it like literally, like, are you going to eat today? Money. Do you have a place to sleep today? Money. Do you have a car? Money. Does that car have gas? Money. You are governed on a day-to-day basis by the dollar amount you have in your bank account more than you'll ever be governed by Nancy Pelosi. And I don't think their magic hand of the market talk is just talk. I think they truly believe that. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is people don't know that the money is fake. The money's not even on an Excel spreadsheet. When when the Bank of America gives a loan to a millionaire, and even if it's like $5 million, they create out of thin air. We don't even have a monetary system that's based upon an Excel spreadsheet. And we're talking about, and this is the very basis of starvation, damnation, and murder and war. And it's it's so prevalent and it's so common that I think we have a hard time even looking at it. And once that becomes the basis of what we think and what we understand, I think that it's like cognitive dissidence, like ratchet up to like level 15. We are dealing with so much hypocrisy and conflicting ideas that even trying to understand the basis of what is basic reality becomes near impossible because we've never had experience with it. What we have experiences with capitalism, with starvation, with like lack and need and just pain and misery i mean and 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 i'll end on this because i I definitely don't want to take up everybody's time but i think at the end of the day that like we 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 live in a country to like uh, land of the free home of the brave and yet black people who were literally put black people were put in slavery to build this country are now in prison getting raped under slave conditions you know what I mean? We're talking about like we're the richest country in the in the entire history of the world, and we wake up every day and look at homeless people. I live in Colorado. I've seen six baby carriages of homeless people, like literal babies homeless, but we wake up to it every day and it's normal. How is it we can be a moral people and have homeless babies? You know what I mean? And that yeah. cognitive dissidence just I, I i think i think that has caused so much problems but it's so rampant and it's so blatant that i think it's just so hard to actually conceive if that makes sense and and thank you for you're making me you know you're making perfect perfect sense sean i i've said this before but when i you know when i say the thing about how like bernie told us it was okay to you know say things like healthcare is a human right without seeming like you're kind of untouch, out of touch and crunchy and weirdly granola and to really own that there could be this marriage between your principles and your politics. I think that part of why it wasn't just powerful kind of politically, but it felt kind of personally healing is because it was like, it allowed you to get, I'll speak for myself. It allowed me to kind of get past that cognitive dissonance and say, I can acknowledge that the world is as bad as it is because I'm committing to a project to make it better. Like, I don't, I don't have to like, you know, in the limbo times when we're all just walking around in the midst of all this inequality, you're like complicit, you know, you're, you're walking past this homeless person. You're walking past this injustice. You see it, you know it, but you know, no one person is, you know, solving all these systemic, excuse me, systemic issues. The Bernie project, it felt like, okay, you know, we're moving towards something like I, I can I can acknowledge I can have a more kind of front of mind acknowledgement of all of the inequities in the system and my role in it because I can actively commit to something to improve it. And not, that's not just obviously Bernie, anybody who does mutual aid or any other kind of organizing work. 
obviously has that out, but Bernie was that out, not an out isn't the way to put it, but an in rather for so many people to feel like they could be a part of a solution and then therefore get more authentically in touch with what they understood to be what was wrong in the world. And I think that is a really powerful thing. And one of my biggest disappointments has been how easily I don't want to say just Bernie, but the whole movement just let all of that go. Yeah, and how I mean, easily we've pivoted from all of these things were such existential concerns. Oh, we're all together, like in this kumbaya circle, talking about the tragedies of this country so openly and honestly, in a way that is absolving people of their personal responsibility for their poverty, for their debt for their inability to pay for health care, for their lack of education, their inability to afford their education, all of these things. Suddenly, all of this could be out in the open without guilt, blame, and judgment because we were a part of a political project to fix it. And to kind of lure people into that space and tell them it's okay. It's a safe space. Like, we're all on this, all in this together. And then to shut the door and have Michael Lighty, that's his name, Michael Lighty and others, Ash Kalra and all of these people telling us, well, 20 years from now, maybe we'll have Medicare for all. That pivot for me is what hurt, like, that that pivot from roaring at rallies, talking about 68,000 people dying a year, to this, it, it, I, I'm sorry, like, I, it, it is unconscionable. Like, it, it just, it, it does not sit well with me. It does not sit well, and, and I've resisted some of the accusations. This is to the earlier caller who was kind of pushing back against the idea of Bernie being a bad faith actor. And like I said, I don't think Bernie's a bad faith actor, but constructively i understand why people take the at take the you know say that you know he took our money and it was under false pretenses because the energy that you're bringing to the 68,000 people a year dying speech and the energy that you're bringing to it now like if you really believe that that is an existential crisis which of course it is to not be fighting for it regardless of the likelihood of a floor vote passing or regardless of the likelihood of having any concrete success like, when it's an existential crisis, you fight for it because it's the right thing to do, not because it's politically expedient or because you happen to have whipped the votes. It, and, 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 it, and, it, and it has to come down to, like, are you being that moral arch that bends towards justice? You know what I mean? These these were never, like, easy words. And the thing that made MLK scary, go and watch some of his speeches. He knew that he could be killed at any second of any day. He just was like, I don't care. I'm going to tell the truth. And there is something powerful, powerful about a person who completely understands their mortality and, and embraces that. And I think that's another lie. And, and, and it, I think that's another lie that we, that like, I, I think the vast majority of Americans don't even understand how to conceptualize the reality of death. But I'm going to tell you. I was fully committed to die for Bernie Sanders and well, the movement in general, you know what I mean? If, if, if my death could save a hundred lives and bring a hundred people out of pain and misery to a, to a level of happiness that I've known because of the privilege I was born into, that's a life worth living. And that's a life worth dying for. You know what I mean? But we have lost so much of that. And instead, it's about like the comfortability and the continuation of the system and our expectations and the expectations that we have. Of we've earned this and we deserve. Let me tell you, nothing of this system is earned or deserved until we are actually working together cooperatively. 
And I think that that's kind of the problem here, that what we're talking about is a bunch of people who put their faith, their identity, what is reality, not in human beings, not in like the people who are dying today because they don't have medical insurance. What we're putting our faith in is the might makes right. The golden rule, the one with the gold makes the rule. And so it's the money, it's the power, it's the military, it's the death potential created by the system of authority, the United States government that I'm going to put my faith in, I'm going to put my trust in. And, and, it, and it's hurtful because of the fact that I do know Bernie Sanders is a moral person. Like, I've done a lot of evaluate, psychological evaluation myself and other people. Bernie Sanders is a moral person, but he's too comfortable. And, 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 the, and the thing is, is that, like, we all die. But I would much rather die living for living for somebody else. You know what I mean? And I think and I think that's that's like the biggest lie that we all tell ourselves. You know what I mean? That like we're not confronting death. And I think that's what most of this is about. The the MSNBC and Sen is about the lack of confronting death and the pain and the misery that comes with that. And I think that just harms all of us. But I'm sorry for. No, don't please don't apologize. I think that point about the cognitive dissonance and the avoidance of the trauma. I mean, that is that is what don't look up is about. It's what it all is. I mean, the environmental crisis puts a probably the finest point on it. Um, at least, kind of collectively as a society, it's something that we're all kind of bound up in together. But it exists in all of these other realms, and I mean, I think that is why it's so important to use these crisis points, these tension points, the pandemic, floor votes, whatever it is, to force people to engage engage with that. It forces people to look up. I don't know. I, I That's really – it's it's I, why I wanna... the people who poo-poo the idea of a stunt or poo-poo the idea yeah. of, like, making a fuss. Like, that's – I mean, at a certain point, I'm sorry, like, no, that's all there we is. Yeah, no, we have to cut through the propaganda. Everybody has been trained to believe that the world, like, people believe a tie is fancy. Like, what? what is a tie? Like, you, you believe a tie is fancy <laughs> because, like, literally five generations of people like, yeah, I have this extra cloth that I put around my neck and a fancy look. Well, I'm special. <laughs> like, are you smart? Are, like, like, literally, do you know what, like, basic intelligence is? But, they, <laughs> but... <laughs> But I will say this: I I, I do want to make it because I guess I know you 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 are understand where I'm coming from. I think that, and I'm be honest here. I think one of the most dangerous aspects that the American public is living with right now is celebrity culture. We have looked at these people like canaries in coal mines. We think, and we we and and I can I can kind of explain this kind of really quickly. If I watch 10 hours of George Clooney movies, even though I've never met George, never seen him with my own eyes, mm-hmm. I'm going to get the feeling that I know George Clooney a little bit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And what happens is, is that a lot of these movie stars have a, what they are is, I think, PR for the capitalistic system of inequity. The thing is, is like, you know, the rock, everybody thinks the rock is a great dude. Endorse Joe Biden. Does the rock care about Yemen children? Does the rock care about Palestinian children? Why is it? that these people who are cultural icons that I guarantee you define a huge portion of our mental activity. Like we define the world. Like I can say John Wick and Keanu Reeves, everybody in the chat knows what I'm talking about. And any reference point I make in those movies, people are going to instantly know this. They are. Ooh, Sean, you just muted yourself by accident. Yeah. Yeah, Sorry. Sorry. So the, the point, the point is, is that these 
we, we, they create culture for us. They create a reality. We know the world through the rock. We know the world through Game of Thrones. This is the basis of our actual common cultural form of language, connection, and understanding. And the one of the darkest things I've actually understood is like looking into the stuff of like CAA and a lot of the 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 like Hollywood like darkness, darkness. Um, uh, uh, Abramovich. There's she's a weird lady, Lady Gaga. Mm-hmm. Or her, I don't. I can't. I don't really want to go into too much detail because I do want to let other people talk. But the point that I really want to make and hammer home is: imagine how much of your world is actually dictated by the fact that celebrities have kind of dictated the condition of our culture. Culture used to be something that was created through community, through socialization, but community has been completely outsourced to capitalism. Every building in the entire United States of America is here to do one thing, to make money, to sell something or something to keep your stuff in sleep. That's it. Every building, even even a church is there to make money. That is the entire condition of all of human imagination and comprehension. We started off drawing antelopes on caves. And I'm dead serious. Like the human, the human condition, we were, we just drew animals on caves. We sent people to the moon. Our ability for imagination development and evolution is insane. I'm literally saying words in, I'm not like, forget words, sounds in different select orders. And these words can have the effect of having ideas in other people's brains. Humans are kind of magic. (laughs) The idea that all of this evolution from literally being animals, animals evolving from animals to being able to send like, have you guys seen like the Hubble telescope? And I forget Mm -hmm. the web telescope. Mm -hmm. The, the excellence has all been for McDonald's. Like that, that's, that's the human condition. Like we're, we're, we're here. We, we did all of this for McDonald's. And so we could have four different cans of, you know, crushed tomato soup and, you know, at my local convenience store, we've lost the plot. We've lost the ability to imagine, to see something more beautiful. And I think the problem is, is that celebrities embody a space of, like, the beauty of all of humanity. We get to eat at fancy restaurants. We get to take these private jets. When in reality, I think the beauty is the capacity that we all have to grow and change, to evolve. I've evolved four or five times over. I know how much value an individual can have from that, but it's something that's not taught because our world is taught about one thing, the externalization, like the, the rhyme I have, the money, cars, clothes, and hose, and all the other shit for show is what we value is the external, external, external. But I'm a person who studied MLK. I studied Jesus. I studied Einstein because my dad thought I was a complete idiot and he was a Harvard graduate, but I, I think the best place I can end this would be on this. Einstein had a quote that I, I just unequivocally love. And when I was a kid, I used to spend like hours reading like a sentence or two of Einstein, just being like, if, if I can, if I can understand what Einstein thought, I'm not an idiot. And I used to be like deathly afraid that I was so stupid. I didn't understand how stupid I was. So I tried to just understand stuff, but Einstein had a quote and this is the quote that has lived with me and stuck with me. A hundred times a day, I have to remind myself that my inner and outer lives are products of people living and dead, and that I must exert myself to give back the same measure that I receive and continue to receive. And it's very simple. 
I didn't create English. I didn't. I'm benefiting from English. Now I have the ability to communicate ideas because of English and I can communicate ideas externally. But you want to know the other thing that English does? It helps me be able to communicate with myself. When I'm alone and just thinking, I have the benefit of English to help me organize my thoughts. I have an inner world that I spend a great deal of time working on. And I think, I know, Brie, you do. And I know there's a lot of people on the left who do have inner worlds, but that's not taught. We all kind of stumble into the understanding that like who I am by myself is just as important as who I am publicly. But that's Mm -hmm. not something that the American system wants to teach us because they want us focused on the external, 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 because that's where they have the control. That's where they have the value. And I think that if we're going to get anywhere, we have to understand the true beauty of what humanity is, is that it is each other. And everything that is truly beautiful, everything that is truly great has been done through cooperation. It has not been done through. We compete with each other in fairness. We don't compete with each other in war. But that's the failure of everything. Sorry. I'm yeah, so sorry. no, don't apologize, Sean. I, I think that there's something that's very beautiful and optimistic about your understanding of humanity and what our capacities are. and. I think so often we look at what our capacities are and what we do with it and we have a pessimistic gloss on everything and you know that's fair enough but while we were talking I was thinking about that 90s movie Bullworth where Warren Beatty has a nervous breakdown he's running for president and he starts saying just true things and then the people love him because he has no filter anymore and I was thinking about the version of that what would happen if someone got up after being elected president and stood up in front of the American public after being sworn in and looked at the crowd and just asked, you know, did we forget that we get to decide what this society looks like and that we have an opportunity here with all of the resources, more resources than exist anywhere else in the world and at any other time in human history to make this world exactly what we want it to be and not be guided by the mistakes of our past, to be enriched by the genius of the past and the kindness of the past and the generosity of the past, but to truly, truly innovate a future. And I I think that a lot of people don't feel that they have that power. And part of the reason that we hide in our, you know, the cognitive dissonance teaches us into these caves where we just hide because what else is there to do but delude yourself and to distract yourself if you don't actually believe you have the power to change things. When I talk to so many people, libertarians especially, and you know other people in these different political spaces that I'm in, what I often find is when you argue and you get down to it, they'll say something like, well, that's just the way it is, you know? And there's no real imagination. There's no real belief you know, they either have a very pessimistic view of human nature, so they think, oh, well, there's just always going to be poverty. There's always going to be violence because that's just the way humans are. And when you point out, well, this, these are the various factors that can make more or less, so why not strive for less and less and less? And so maybe we even get to zero. There's a kind of unwillingness to even open your mind to the idea that things can be meaningfully better. And I, and I think it comes from a place of fear and fear of disappointment. And hurt, not necessarily that they're rooting for the bad outcome, you know. But I, you know, I I try to challenge myself to think, you know, this is the Star Trek part of me. You really can, 
design. We're in charge. We're in charge. We get to decide ostensibly if we had a real democracy. But, you know, like our goal should be to really decide how things can be better. And, you know, you're right. We've come a really long way. And it is kind of wonderful to think of how much farther along we can get. And I do think that we can get a lot farther along. And I appreciate you calling in, Sean, and and rapping to us. I I liked your vibe a lot. I, I, I much appreciate it. And I just want to say one thing to your point. It's not only fear of change, but it's the fear. And this is something, like, I, I realize my dad's, I, I think I told you, and Snarf is going to attest to this, but my, dad, my dad's a black Harvard graduate who grew up in, like, the actual projects of, like, New York City. My mom's a white hippie who doesn't even have a high school diploma. I used to say, like, it could have been a sitcom if they didn't fight as much, but they fought more than even that. But what I want to say is that the, one of the things that I realized was the most dangerous thing is the lie that you tell yourself. And what happens is, is you get people who tell themselves a lie and it's the most dangerous thing in the world because of the fact you can tell yourself a lie for a week. Hopefully it's just then, but once you get to year, two year, five years, 10 years, once you've lived a lie, you've believed the lie for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and let, let's be honest here, there are people who have been living a lie for 50 years and they're never going to change because of the fact, the fear of them actually confronting the fact that for the last 50 years they've been living mm-hmm. a lie is so overwhelmingly mm-hmm. scary to them that they will kill and die before they even confront that lie. Mm-hmm. And that is, and, and, and it's a real thing and it's, and, and it's a real hard thing but i i think that we need to get to the place where we're talking honest truth and we're honestly looking for honest truth because if we the people who actually do look at this and and think about this stuff don't even develop a a space where these types of conversations can happen there is never going to be the level of comfortability for a person living with a lie who's afraid because of the fact they don't want to confront it you know what i mean and it it's scary but I, I just want to say, Bree, I appreciate you so much. And um, and your work on Forest the Vote, I was in that Slack. That place was amazing. Yeah. I I do think it got a little bit uh, infiltrated or a lot. But the same thing happened with, you know, the March for Medicare for All. We yeah. actually had Joe, Bi- Joe Biden voters posed as Nazis. And they were like, oh, my God, there's a whole bunch of Nazi marches. I found the information that it was actually Joe Biden voters and they pretty much said like, we're not going to go forward with this because the left, I don't know, a little bit cowardly, but the point, the point that I just want to say is I, I, I do want to thank you for all the work that you do, but more so than that, I do think that there is a time to be brave and I think it's now. And I think that like, if we have any hope of changing anything, we need to speak honestly, we need to start telling the truth. Because if we continue to just like put ourselves in these shells and protective situations to feel like we're right and righteous all the time and we never confront if we're wrong, we're never going to be able to grow. And people are going to look at us and they're not going to want to join us because growing and being able to admit that you're wrong is one of the most powerful things that can be done. And I, I and I don't know. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've taken up a whole bunch of time, but <laughs> but I, I no. I, I I appreciate you. I got to go now, Sean. Not to take more callers, but because I said I was going to hold this at two hours. Now we're almost at two and a half hours. But I appreciate you calling in. Keep the faith, Sean. Keep the faith, Brianna. And I. Just- oh, I'm so sorry. I had already um pressed the button.
But a little bit, Sean, that's why, because I suspected that it was not going to be a clean wrap, and I really do got to get out of here. Um, thank you guys all for calling in. I really appreciate uh, this community and to have the space to have these kinds of um, important conversations. <sighs> giving me um, a lot to think about. Thank you for being partners and pick, pick, picking away at the cognitive dissonance that keep us, keeps us all so bound. And I will see you on Thursday. I really enjoyed it. I recorded the episode today. I really enjoyed um, this extremely informed guest who will be unpacking an issue area that we haven't really covered on this podcast, but was a big story around the holidays. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. Keep the faith. The ghetto was a day-to-day fight Being down so long Getting up to the cross of my mind But I knew there was a better way of life And I was just trying to find You don't know what you do Till you put under pressure Cross 110th Street is a hell of a tester Across 110th Street Pimps trying to catch a woman next week